0: Quell your quibbles and qualms, my quixotic questioners and quantrils. Come quench and quaff as we quickly quarry the latest quota of our quasi-qualified and quite quizzical quackery into the fifth season, and its characters' quandaries and queries as they quest for questions over the quivers and quakes through the quantum of Quesara. As per usual, I'm Spencer, and forming my quarrelsome quorum of quirky quasitors are PJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? Thoroughly impressed, Spencer. Thoroughly impressed.
1: and uh, to complete the cue, the word that you didn't want to say is quadrum for it, and that will be the four <laughs> episodes that we do for this book, most likely, and we are on the second of
0: those. Indeed. We are continuing through this very interestingly structured book in terms of following the lives of different characters, at seemingly very different points in time. Last time we did the young girl, Demaya. This time we're going through, I'd say, what was she, late teens, early 20s, Cyanide?
2: I would say more early 20s in my view, Um, early to mid-20s even.
0: I think that's what she says, yeah. And I think it comes across, too, is she's really, she's established herself in the world that she's, from her perspective, chosen. But now throughout her story, she's really getting exposure to uh, the alternatives to the life she leads and the ultimate immorality of the world that she occupies. Would you say this is a mentored or unmentored approach that she's taking? You know, (laughs) I was really going to, I wanted to start with this. Uh, She, early on... Well, actually, where did we stop last time? Did we stop when Demaya picked her new name? Did we make it that far? We did Remind not me, say
1: what her new name is. And that was we, we going to be
0: the transition. It. Well, one of the things that's left mysterious throughout this entire text is how these three seemingly unrelated narrators fit into each other. We can deduce that they're at different points in time in the sense that two of them are actively enduring the apocalypse, but we don't have for most of the text, a direct, literal statement of who they are and how they're connected. One of the moments where this becomes much more readily apparent, though, is at the end of Demaya's last chapter, where, upon telling horror... I'm not going to use mentor anymore, because you all made fun of me for like a week <laughs> after I used it. Her guardian, Ska- uh, Skaeva, uh what... that she will endure her first ring of training for him, in many ways to survive, whereas she'll probably be facing a death sentence otherwise, for what she knows... She reveals that she has picked a new name for herself, a name of a potential ring bearer, Cyanite, who we've known for long before this was the name of our second character who's farther along in life by about 10 or 12 years. So provides our first link to hint, as we will find out more and more, these characters have not only practical connections into the same world and experience, but moments in life connections and truth.
1: Yeah, fascinating. There are some authors that like to uh, tie up some loose ends. And bring them together towards the end of a book,
0: unlike certain other authors that, that may or may not have TV shows. Um, certain, certain authors write across individual books; other authors write across various novels. And other we can judge for ourselves which one's more successful. Well, if they ever finish the novels. Yes, but um, I will go into this right now, just because I'm curious for you guys. No, curious for your your guys' opinion about my use of terminology. Uh, the early focus of Cyanide's uh, chapter is that. She is being assigned a senior ring bearer as, I was going to use the word mentor, as she goes out on what is implied to be her first assignment of field to uh, correct a coral obstruction in a distant harbor in the town of Alia. Do you guys believe, from the early descriptions in the text, that the term mentor correctly applies to the person we will soon know as Alabaster? I think that at the introduction that
1: is a somewhat appropriate appellation but as you get a little bit more of what she is actually sent to do that 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 term mentor is not really really encompassing and descriptive of what her relationship with Alabaster is and is supposed to be and is intended.
2: Yeah, I mean, the term mentor applies to Alabaster for about the same amount of time that we can apply it to Shafa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, sort of, I guess. Well, so um, I, I that's think part it's part of it. Yeah, I think
1: that's part of it. And I also think it's more appropriate where a mentor is guiding you in some aspect of your your life, your training, your something else. There is an aspect of the relationship that is that in terms of Alabaster and Cyanide. Although it's Alabaster is
2: not a particularly good mentor, even under those terms.
1: <laughs> yes, I, I would say this is very um when when we talk about the fulcrum as a sort of academic institution i think that the mentorship that shafa uh that sorry not shafa that alabaster gives to cyanite is very um appropriate and reminiscent of what one w- might expect in many academic institutions. <laughs>
0: it, it, it's interesting because uh, the mentorship is at least when it's originally assigned, an accepted cover story that everyone involved knows is bullshit. Of where he's being assigned as your mentor, you will learn from him, he's a ten ringer, the highest of our order, you're a your four ringer, you can gain so much knowledge and experience from him. Whereas both Cyanite and the woman that assigns her to this mission are immediately clear that her the actual nature of their relationship is going to be to further the various genetic schemes that the Fulcrum has for itself that their job is essentially to produce a baby over the course of this wandering afar. Now, that is the actual reason that they're for, that they're together, but it seems like Alabaster, in his own quirky, rather ineffectual and caustic manner, does fully intend to serve as a mentor for Sinai. For he wants to give her a certain degree of new exposure to the world, a different perspective on the land that she operates in, and... The overall morality of the fulcrum and its uh, its efforts but, yeah i would uh, say that it's uh, that
2: different perspective that is really his driving um sort of motivation for even taking on this mentorship role like he has no real interest in doing that has become well in the, he has no real interest in doing either part of the quote-unquote mentorship role um that that he is supposed to be fulfilling um but i think he does take a sort of perverse anarchic pleasure um, from kind of pulling pulling the veil from over um, Cyanide's eyes, right? Like that is yeah, that is his yeah. one real driving motivation.
1: Yeah, he oh, he burst likes bursting bubbles, and and I thoroughly mm-hmm. uh, appreciate that motivation of his character. Yeah, <laughs> Um yeah. So it would be I, interesting.
2: I, interested though. Sorry, BJ, I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt, but I, I would be interested to know what you all think because like this first conversation in this very first scene that we see in which we see Cyanite, she is talking to um feldspar who is assigning her to mm-hmm. alabaster as you were saying spencer for with the understanding that like the real mission is to conceive and bear a child um with this very powerful um origin and you know that she is presumed to be powerful as well. And so this sort of eugenics experiment is probably going to be very beneficial for the fulcrum. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that, like, they are both women having this conversation and how this might have been different if Feldspar was not a woman. Like, do you think that conversation it, would have gone differently? I do, because as much as
0: she doesn't really have much of a connection with Feldspar, as much as she resents her, Feldspar comes into this conversation with the accepted notion of, I'm telling you to do this, and I have the perspective of having gone through it before.
2: Many times.
0: She, yeah, she she discusses that essentially her role as being a person who is a, the equivalent of a mid, mid-level manager in the Fulcrum who will never rise higher has been to produce children. That that has been the majority of her function for a time with the Fulcrum. And she is now sending out cyanide on the first of what will almost certainly be many missions in that regard. And so, I think that makes for a very different conversation that she's coming into this with an absolute understanding of what Cyanide's about to do. And I don't know whether it's necessarily sympathy that she's bringing into this, but it's certainly an understanding. I guess I also kind of assumed that there was a... And this was
1: a pure probably mistake on my reading it, but that there were more female origins than male. And in my mind, I essentially had it set up similar to... Uh, the Wheel of Time or Dune or something like that, <laughs> where essentially most of these characters that had this power were female.
0: Which you're saying these, you're saying this order has been a Gesserit, essentially.
1: Yeah. But you know, uh, on actual reflection on what's in the text and things like that, my realization and reasonable presumption is that there's a very segregated, uh, gender assignment, uh, not in the gender assignment, I feel like that's the the wrong term, but the assignments given out that are very gender specific are done by the same uh, sex. So female origins are essentially going to have this, not quite saying it, but you have to have sex with this male origin conversation with each other, and then there's going to be a completely separate conversation that the male origins are going to have with each other that... We never get to see, but presumably that's very sex-seeker.
2: Well, it doesn't seem that anyone has a conversation with Alabaster about (laughs) about this particular assignment. Well, Um, yeah,
1: but I think that's because of his position and power. And
2: and he, like, as we learn, you know, later on in this sort of um, in Cyanite's narrative, like he has, um, in kind of the most tragic way, done this many times before, right? Right.
0: Which makes it interesting because, as a nature of his position, this is one thing that shocks Cyanide early, is that because he's a tin ringer, and apparently that's a a right reserved only for the highest rank of his organization, he has the right to say no. And as we saw back under Demaya, the ability to say no is not possible for members of the Fulcrum. Origins don't get to say no to any aspect of what they're ordered to do. By guardians. uh, By guardians. Presumably it's also suggested that's the case for the Fulcrum too. It is. To the degree those organizations overlap. Um, so cyanite is... She seems to know this to a certain degree going in, but she's still shocked to, remember, to have it put before. But she doesn't inquire really further into why Alabaster doesn't. He clearly doesn't want to have a relationship with cyanite. He doesn't want to be forced into this thing. He's uncomfortable with the entire idea of it. But he still doesn't refuse. He still doesn't turn her or send her away. Which isn't a topic that she goes into early. But I... Like you said, Sarah, I think, I think it kind of goes into that as much as Alabaster resents this level of control that's put under him... He really relishes the opportunity to provide that kind of rebellious, anarchic perspective to a new student, to bring somebody over to his to his uh, his cause and view of the world.
1: Okay, so I, I guess that leads me to a couple of things that I sort of want to discuss before we continue, because we essentially leave the fulcrum from now on. We get like a little... Forever. Bit, yeah, we get a little bit of information about the fulcrum in, in later chapters, but... Why? Well, like, what do you think is essentially compelling Alabaster to go along with this? First of all, and second of all, uh, Spencer, if you think that Alabaster, part of Alabaster's motivation is to bring other people, or at least Cyanite, into the fold of, you know, this entire society is bullshit, and you know there are all these problems, and let me tell you about it. Given that he is presumed to have many many offspring from quite a number of different origins um do you think he's never tried this before or he's been rebuffed like you know how does that relationship play out that that's a motivation that he's willing to undertake and you know are there essentially uh, a bunch of his agents in the fulcrum now or is he just like has this quixotic uh quest to you know quibble with you know what's going on in the fulcrum in such a manner that like he's willing to keep taking this up you know for the past 20 30 40 women that he's had sex with and that's you know his only motivation for being in the same room with them well t-
0: two points in, in response to your idea about his ability to say no i kind of assumed from the description and how all-powerful the guardians in the fulcrum are that this was more of a uh, say de jure rather than de facto right. That on paper he has the absolute right to say no, but if he engages in it too much, his life may be forfeit in the process. That was kind of my assumption for how that problem works. As for uh, his ability to recruit other people to his philosophy in life, uh, from what we see of Alabaster, he is kind of the dictionary definition of uh, caustic and prickly. He's not necessarily the easiest person to get to know or like, and in some ways he seems to connect with another person by trying to poke them and tear down their beliefs and make them uncomfortable. You might even call
2: him querulous.
0: Thank you, to return to our Q theme. Mm -hmm. Very appropriate term. Uh, He he seems to, in many ways, try to uh, I don't want to say necessarily test, but connect with Cyanide by being rude to her, by challenging her views, by making her intentionally angry to see how he responds, how she responds. That seems to be kind of the nature of his style of interacting with others. We see it in terms of how he interacts with many people. Um, That is not necessarily a a social bearing that can inherently engender other people to you. So I wouldn't necessarily assume that if Alabaster has tried this in the past, he's been successful. Uh, I think it's strongly implied that even if he has attempted in the past, he isn't. I think from what we see throughout Cyanide's story arc and continuing in the end, to our third character, assume that he is very much a lone operator, that whatever his goals are, he has not previously been able to establish alliances or connections that would be necessary to facilitate that, until really what we see in Cyanide's arc in a variety of ways, in, ter- in terms of him learning more about the world and connecting and developing a relationship with the people that might be able to assist him. So I, if he has tried to interact with other people like Cyanide, I... Don't think he succeeded, and I think in some ways that's a product of just the nature of his quarrelsome character.
2: Well, and I think we we might also think about kind of something that he, and I'm I'm unclear if we really learn this in Demaya's story arc, but Alabaster talks quite clearly later about the fact that like he was certainly bred in the fulcrum, right? Um yeah, he is he, he is here. fulcrum born and the um, product of like. A lot of like very careful picking and choosing of who is is going to reproduce with whom, right? but the the impression that I get and tell me if I'm wrong about this, um, is that many of the people, many of the origins in the fulcrum are fulcrum born as well, partially because you know, um, origins born in the wild tend not to survive um, or tend not to make it in the fulcrum too And so it's my impression that he's probably dealing with a lot of other fulcrum born origins um who have had that much more kind of um
0: indoctrination
2: or brainwashing, <laughs> yeah. Um kind of aspect Spencer. Yeah. La- <laughs> laid Correct, <you're> on <laughs> them, right? Um and so his kind of ability to break through any of that is, you know, necessarily already. great.
0: No, I, I agree. I think that's an excellent point. I think it really broaches also an interesting question too about the breeding pattern the Fulcrum is engaged in. I think we mm-hmm. have a very strong demonstration through what Alabaster tells us and what we see in this arc that the Fulcrum is engaged in a, a whole se- a, a wholesale genetic um, plan to bring about more origins and more genes of particular power, and that they very much resent the idea that they don't have a full control or understanding of this. They resent the idea that there are origins still born in the wild that are outside of their control. We talked about it under Demise Arc how the um, Fulcrum in some ways has the greatest interest in maintaining the stereotypes and fears about origins because it drives them all under its protection and banner and thereby consolidates their control under its flag. Uh, we also see, very clearly said in this arc, that they're trying in many ways to so thoroughly control the breeding of origins that they can absolutely make it a science, but that it isn't. They can't just clearly breed two origins together and produce the result that they want. Um, from this kind of genetic plan, do we get an idea of what the Fulcrum's goals are and what kind of really independent power it lead, it, it wields? I think that's a great
1: question to talk about, and I think that if we talk about it too soon... Uh, we sort of spoil a lot of talking about the plot. Okay.
2: Yeah, I think uh, at this what, point, what, when we first learn about kind of the the plot to um, genetically modify or enhance or kind of direct Ora genes, we don't have a sense of what what that means or what they're trying to do. Okay,
0: well, let's what make one of the questions that we address as we get to the end, because we see a lot we see a lot of the both soft and hard power that the Fulcrum leads before we were done with Cyanide uh, in the initial going, as we said. Cyanite has a conversation with Feldspar where she is this, essentially assigned to Alabaster with the cover story that he's going to guide her as the... Pretty, is it strongly implied that Alabaster is the only Ten Ringer that exists in the Fulcrum? That he I believe the, that's
1: what he says. And I, yeah. and, and I don't believe that Cyanite knew that there were others yeah and that like there were others sort of at the same time I think that there were two ten ringers at the same time when alabaster and his mentor
0: well, yeah, whatever happened to him right
2: and it's also uh, it's also kind of mentioned that like alabaster is a ten ringer um but probably only because the ranking only goes up to ten ring.
0: there are only so many fingers they haven't pond- they haven't really pondered toes yes yes yeah. oh so.
1: I feel like we should mention, and pr- hopefully all of our listeners have read this, but but 10 ringers are how many rings you get to wear, um, and you put one on each of your fingers, and that symbolizes the power level slash training slash many other things of a uh, given
0: origin. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I was going to, in some ways, stick to what the author does here and just not explain it for about the next 35 minutes until we just kind of <laughs> get it, because... This is just another example of the... I really, I in some ways, respect the author that she is willing to trust us to learn from just continual immersion into the language and the uh, culture that she's invented for this one. Yeah. The Ringer concept is never really explained until about two-thirds of the way through Cyanite's arc. I feel but like... we're just left to kind of just pick it up and get it. It's kind of when the
1: news or uh, random articles were, will report on various different things, like chess rankings or martial arts or something like that where they'll be like oh and this person who's like a fourth don black belt in judo did blah 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 and it's like
3: uh,
1: okay like i guess from the amount of media that i've consumed a black belt's a high level but i don't know what fourth (laughs) don means and where that is on anything else but obviously somebody that's a fifth don is higher than that okay Mm Yeah, similar situation here.
2: And we did we did leave our last episode, and we leave at the kind of near the end of the novel. We leave um, Demaya's arc with the understanding that she is taking her test for better or worse um, for her first ring. Um, and, uh,
0: important important structural point to tell our audience for those that have either are still reading the book or have not read it. Uh, we are dividing up our recount and our analysis of these arcs in terms of the characters. The book is not in any way divided in that way. There is not a Damaya section, a Sinite section, well, and a Sun section. There, are, there chapters. are chapters. Yes, but they are <laughs> interspersed to an incredible degree. I, I think and that it does are, feel
2: like. Oh, go ahead.
1: I was going to say I think that they are interspersed in a very good way in terms of like how the pieces fall together and you understand the world. Right, but that's fair.
2: And it, I will it, say that. Um, <laughs> Spencer, you deciding to reveal that now um, was an excellent homage to Jemison um, and being kind of immersed in the world for 20 minutes before um, explaining what it is that we're doing in the first place.
0: We're keeping to the themes <laughs> of the story here. We really try hard. I'm giving you an authentic experience as we recount it. This was planned. But, this
2: was plotted.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so she gets assigned to feldspar. I'm sorry. She gets assigned to Alabaster fairly, uh, very early on in the story. Uh, she goes to greet him, and they both immediately know what the actual nature of their relationship has been assigned to be. And Sinai wastes little time in cutting down to it. She... Here's just a practical question. In terms of describing Sinai's character in the early nature of the story, are there particular adjectives that you would use to describe her? Consign. That's a good one. Yeah, there. Um, it's definitely an... an, an, Yeah, sorry. Oh,
2: I would just... Like, no nonsense. Yeah. Uh,
0: She is a person who... I think to a certain degree, she disdains or resents the lot in life that she has been assigned, but she knows no alternative, and she aims to succeed in the only world that she knows. So I think resigned, um, no-nonsense, are very accurate descriptions of how she goes about things. And I think that plays really true in terms of her in- initial interactions with Alabaster. I feel like you she was- would
1: have been very comfortable and happy with the transactional nature of uh, their, their meeting. <laughs>
0: Given that the transactional nature of their meeting is arranging for the immediate reproduction of a ch- immediate creation of a child, I, I think I would have I would have had a few qualms about it. Really, I
1: just imagine you being very happy with like a you know a set out contractual agreement that everybody signs and gets notarized at the end for for something like that.
0: Oh, you were just <laughs> playing out how Bridge and I met on day one. <laughs> uh, but as described, uh, pretty early on, Cyanide is just like well hi i'm here we have a job to do let's get on to it
1: and and i also think it's very interesting because alabaster is clearly very uncomfortable with this and very much wants a like okay let's have a conversation like you've appeared at my door like what why are you here like what do you like what's the purpose of you coming here and she's just like all right well i'm gonna take off my shirt like Do you like how much do i actually need to strip for us to have sex because like we need to do this and he's just like can you tell me your name first like what's going on like
0: (laughs) yeah i mean her, her sole goal here is rank advancement but from what feldspar told her she knows that she needs to produce a child over the course of their journey together for the sake of continuing to advance in the um fulcrum organization that's the only reason she's here that's all she really cares about And so she's really practically annoyed that he's even trying to make it more than that. And I I think
1: it's also kind of telling in his and her understanding of what goes on at the fulcrum that he's not quite as aware of this, maybe, to start out with. And she's just like, all right, well, you know, I've been sent to you, so clearly, like, this is what we're supposed to do, and we're going to do it. And he's just like, wait, what? Okay... I guess, but can we, like, not just yet?
0: Which is interesting, because as difficult as this is for him, as much as he tries to make it something more than what she is aiming for it to be, as you suggested, Peter, he's gone through this, what, 20 times before? An innumerable amount of times before with similarly situated people to Cyanide. But he seems no more comfortable or content with the process that's being forced upon him. And, Sarah, I I have... I'm
1: dragging you into the conversation because you haven't <laughs> talked for a little while. Um, so this has happened many times before, but, and, you know, presumably we'll get to it eventually. Uh, it seems that the Alabaster's preference is not women. Yeah. But yeah. so how do you think it sort of happened that he at seemingly, at least willingly went along with this quite a number of times before and isn't, I don't know, and, like, sort of didn't know that he was being put up to it.
2: Well, so I'm... Part of the reason that I am sort of silent over here, I don't... I'm not sure that I really, like... I am not sure that I agree with your... With both of your interpretations that, like, he is looking for something more out of this. I think he's tired and bewildered, and she is knocking at his door, and he's like, Can I at least know your name? But that is partially also a power play I think Um, Mm. and like he he knows what's going on like I don't get the impression that he doesn't know what's going on or doesn't know what she's actually there for I think that he's pissed off at the whole system he's annoyed that she's there he's tired Um, he has no sexual desire for her or women period Uh, would prefer not to be doing this and is going to kind of Undercut this whole process as much as possible, and I would imagine that that is essentially how all of his interactions like this have gone in the past. Um, Cyanide mm-hmm. just happens to be equally as annoyed.
0: It's it's interesting though, given that he actually does have the ability to say no in a way that Cyanide doesn't. It comes across as a rather petty act of rebellion because he does consent uh, does consent to do it before the scene is over, but he wants to make it as difficult as possible and offer as much. Uh, Roadblocks as he can before he goes forward with it.
2: So, do we get any impression that he does anything other than that in any other aspect of his life?
0: No, that is a very accurate early impression of his character.
2: <laughs> I mean, uh, that's uh, just who he is.
0: Yeah, I would yeah. say uh, malicious
1: compliance is sort yeah. of his uh, <laughs> M.O. But I, I think when that he an excellent
0: summary there, BJ.
1: When he recounts some of his previous experiences, he does say that like there was a point in time that he didn't realize that he was essentially being bred and he, he thought, says that and that I he th- thought yeah. that women being that the women being sent to him to procreate were actually interested in him. And so I don't remember the exact phrasing, but I feel like it was, you know, and it put like a different spin on it and like I, whatever it was. And I guess like, my what i don't understand about this interaction then is that if he has no interest like did he say no a handful of times and so these weren't actually consummated quote-unquote uh well consummated breedings or was it he's somewhere in the middle of the uh sexuality spectrum and it's not he has it's not that he doesn't have no interest in women it's just lesser and especially when they're presenting as like all right well i guess like i need you to
0: impregnate me so let's get this done which if we're willing to bust out the kinsey scale i'm picking up from the text that he's probably a five that i would i would be of the view that he would be nothing more than incidentally into one. um from his description i mean even when they find a way to make a relationship between the two of them work It is through a third party that they have had any degree of of, uh, attraction to each other.
1: But I guess that's Um, like the same, like, I guess in my mind, that's the same woman that already he's had like some unpleasant experiences with, as opposed to like, maybe there are some that he's more interested in. And that's, you know, some of the previous experiences and having somebody approach you in the... Um, let's say clinical manner uh, or very brusque manner that that cyanide did isn't very conducive to having a um, an intimate experience
2: well i think that that's that is certainly a possibility i mean cyanide is um
0: difficult in her own (laughs) way
2: well and i mean she has no (laughs) there there is no pretense towards sensuality or eroticism or like eh, pleasure um, at all, I mean, she's pulling out a bottle of lube like as she walks in the door. Um, right. But you know, I think that all of this gets, and I don't want to, I don't want to jump out of, out of kind of the order of the revelations that we get. But all of this becomes so difficult and charged, and kind of the the question of where, Alabaster is kind of. Um, proclivities and pleasure get him to or what you know what he even prefers are so fraught with his mm-hmm. experience of his children
0: um yeah, very true, very true
2: and his experience where the sort of fulcrum mandated procreation, whether he whether he knew always that that's where you know, these encounters were coming from. like However that happened, I think that the aftermath of what he learns about his children and who they are and where they end up um, so colors all future interactions that it's really difficult in my mind to tease out sexuality and sexual preference from this sort of oppressive system of mandated sex and kind of enforced... slavery of your children afterwards like it's that it's such a it's a good question BJ it's an important one but it's so difficult to tease out given the sort of non all of the other stuff around kind of what maybe his core sexuality might be um, that I I, I cannot provide an answer to that
1: yeah and I guess the other thing that I think we should maybe push to episode 4 once we're done with the main storyline and one of the I guess, questions that I have about Alabaster as a character is is sort of now that we know more about the world, like, what do you think Alabaster's progression from, you know, early childhood to now is? Oh, yeah, I would love an
2: origin story for (laughs) Alabaster. Yeah, because,
1: you know, I think that really, like, we get bits and pieces of it and we'll discuss the pieces, you know, sort of as they come up that we learn. Um, But... I think that, that, as you mentioned, like plays a huge role in who Alabaster is now, and we have a very full character, but we have no idea like what made him this way.
0: Sure. Yeah. I think it's important to note that as much as he's serving as a mentor character, as much as he's at the top of this organization, Alabaster is not a grizzled veteran, but I don't think by any definition. I mean, my interpretation of his character was he was probably about no more than 10 years older than Cyanide. Oh, I... I Yes, like mid 40s to 50 you were you were saying that old i was thinking i was thinking on the mid on the mid 30s kind of it okay i don't know is Sarah anything I, don't, there? I
2: don't know i would have said in his 40s probably um no, but he does have a sort of naivete about him like at the I same mean, but time but he's been that cloistered he is, yes and he, he, he is cloistered. he is fulcrum raised um he has been cloistered he has always had more power than those around him um and yeah. Yeah. i i would say have has been keenly aware of that um and so that, that gives you a different experience of the world and gives you a very lonely experience of the world, which I think is like the overwhelming thing that I end up getting from him is mm-hmm. that he's lonely.
0: Yeah. It's also very ambiguous what degree of independence he actually has. Yes. I mean, we hear about his ability to say no. We don't know how long that's really been in place. We don't know how long he's been a Ten Ringer. And we're told mm-hmm. very specifically that's a power that only Ten Ringers have. Right. We also know very early on that unlike seemingly any other origin, he does not have a guardian. That he did something uh, to her, and he's never had one again since. That's way later, and, we, and <laughs> de- now... It, it, no, it's it, it's said fairly early he doesn't have a guardian. He just doesn't explain it. He doesn't and have he a guardian with He explains it a little him. bit more later. He does not have a guardian with him, and we find out later he does not have a guardian at all. So I'm, uh, I'm literally writing
1: this down right now, and I have a question, and hopefully we'll, we can discuss this more later. Um, are guardians purposefully... The opposite sex. Hmm.
0: Well, we don't have many examples to draw from there, but we do know that his guardian was a female. And we do know that Cyanite's guardian, Demaya's guardian, was a male. That's about pretty it. much the only sample size we have right yep. at this stage. Anyway, so but so let's le- continue through the text. Yeah, okay. so, so yeah, they- I, we, we
1: have. <laughs> so I think with Cyanite, we have um, a couple of essentially stories, and like maybe three of them. To, to discuss, so yeah, and I think that unlike no- first. and Esun, where they have like different chapters that like mean something, we have sort of like chunks of story. Yeah, so so, so after
2: after Cyanite and Alabaster have wildly unsatisfying sex, um...
1: and I will say, and and again, something I want to discuss, you know, probably in our fourth episode is. I think the depictions of sex in this book are some of the best that I've read. Period.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um.
0: <laughs> Which is interesting. Cause we get, um, I would say, different perspective on on sex just in Cyanite's own story, uh, own arc. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you know, I think that they range from, you know, vaguely unpleasant to perfunctory to you know, somewhat erotic and that they are not intrusive or overdone or out of place for the story. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that I think is impressively rare for an author to be able to do. Yeah.
0: It, it is an interesting um, degree of focus to make them meaningful to the character but not titillating to the reader. And I haven't seen that as much.
2: Um, uh. So they, they go out on a mission um, that is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like part to the part town two. of alia, yeah. D-
3: yeah so
1: to, so to i was going to say so we have so i was going to say we have the on the way to alia where they stop at a node station and that's right. one section yes then we have the in you know, alia. in alia and mm-hmm. then essentially the post alia repercussion
2: yes i think that's fair
1: um, okay, and cool. so, ho- hopefully, we can cover those three in you know some semblance of uh, sanity, order, and reasonable amount of time. Um, right.
0: Well, well, it seems the first one to address then is the uh, incident with the node that's on their journey to Alia. Yes, because that that has wide scale implications, both in revealing to Cyanite how this world functions, what is the order yes. by which this world is governed, um, and putting perspective on what is our first chapter of this book, in terms of uh, what are the motivations behind the end of this world. But on their journey, uh, the two of them do, I think it's fair to say, do not get along by any definition. Uh, They do not enjoy each other's company to any degree. But one of the things that in some ways bonds them together is a, what appears to be, sudden, random moment of chaos, and were it not for the two of them, inevitable tragedy as they're marching along this high road, which I'd be curious to know how you guys view this uh, description of a high road, because it's talked about in several ways, but I don't really have a clear image on it. Uh, But As
1: you probably thoroughly would enjoy, I sort of imagined it as a, you know, major sort of Roman thoroughfare, where it is (laughs) a, of that time, you know, not like paved or anything, but a well-worn trade route or whatever that's probably patrolled by the you know emperor's guards or whatever you know the uh, ruling body that we actually have no idea what it actually is um etc
0: yeah. it's a maintained highway that through aid of both origins and also scientists is able to survive the tectonic activity that is the day-to-day life of this world
1: yeah but um, and as there i mm-hmm. feel like we should also vaguely uh, mentioned that we at this point have some idea that uh, origin tectonic origin's major power is dealing with uh, quelling tremors and other tectonic activity and on the road Cyanite realizes that alabaster is spending pretty much all of his time quelling any minor tectonic activity in the area and that's one of the reasons that he's so unresponsive
0: which she finds really kind of weird and fascinating that he's doing this both that he's engaging in the labor but also in some ways the purposelessness of it because from her perspective quelling all these tiny quakes will ultimately only make a a larger quake worse but he's still at every available opportunity every available thought the point she thinks he's just ignoring her using all of his abilities to just make the area around them utterly silent and utterly... Um, what she writes off is just, like I said, it, it's not probably not even helping things that he's doing this, but also unnecessary, because there are this series of nodes that exist around the world, which we kind of heard a little about in Tobias' chapter, of where, throughout at least the equator of this world, there are these stations called nodes, which, through the aid of an origin that's placed inside them, are able to maintain a certain stability in these close to the center of civilization communities, So they don't have to worry about the constant quakes that are otherwise part of the day-to-day life of the world. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Well, and it, it it's just so interesting um, to me kind of thinking about the sort of like false... Um, innocuousness of the word node as we as we learn yeah. as we learn later it's but like, so neutral it really was it was certainly never clear in Demaya's chapter or at least in chapters at least to me and maybe I just missed it but that there was an origin there um or that Ooh. there was anyone there just the idea of a quote-unquote neutral node um
1: yeah and then it erases maintainer. all
2: yeah it erases all of the kind of like physicality, individuality right. like anything, any of the actual meaning behind it that we, learn, that we learn later. Anyway, I was struck by that as you were talking about nodes, Spencer in ways that I hadn't we, really been before
0: No, it, it, just even the terminology they used is designed to be as impersonal as, qual- as possible. Yes. You're supposed to view this as being utterly mechanical divorced from humanity don't dwell about the details it's just a fixture of the world that maintains stability. Don't yeah. ask what's there, don't ask what's inside it it, just, as you said, even in the very language they use, it's designed not to inspire questions or further inquiry about what is the nature of this machine that is somehow keeping keeping the Earth still. Uh, and Dubai, and Cyanide uh, herself just kind of rebuffs the thought of it. It's just that, ah, it's, you know, it's it's burnout origins from the fulcrum that aren't able to maintain discipline whatever else. So there's the sign there to be bored for the rest of them. And she doesn't want to really inquire into it further. Alabaster kind of teases this that No, every origin should go to a node, to which Cyanite just views that as just the most boring vacation of all history. (laughs) Until, as they're looking out over the horizon, the world suddenly aims to end in front of them. A Yellowstone supervolcano event has just suddenly appeared right before them. Alabaster picks it up first, Cyanite shortly thereafter, as they suddenly realize that a hotspot, a supervolcano that no one had previously ever had the slightest clue about, is about to emerge within their immediate proximity. Through the nature of his extreme abilities, through an ability that she previously believed impossible in terms of connecting to her, and I think this is true, correct me if I'm wrong, through ability to connect to the obelisks that are floating around this world that she also didn't believe was possible, uh, Alabaster is able to summon enough power to prevent what could well be the start of a fifth season from occurring without any prior forewarning. Is that a roughly accurate description, guys, about what happens over the course of that pretty long description of trying to silence the apocalypse?
1: Yeah. So I think the other thing that I would add is that this act is completely draining on both of them. Yeah. And so they're, you know, it's sort of like they both ran a marathon or two, and Mm -hmm. then right afterwards, Alabaster says, we have to go to the node station now. Mm -hmm. And Cyanide's just like... First of all, what the hell just happened? Second of all, how'd you do that? Third of all, I hate you for basically just taking over my body and my power <laughs> for a while. And then lastly, you're about like, we're both about to like fall down and die. We're not going anywhere.
2: So I would like to point out just in the interim that those four steps that you ju- I think four steps that you just described, BJ, really encapsulate um, Cyanites and Alabaster's relationship always. <laughs> Yeah, Um, that that process gets played over and over and over again.
1: (laughs) But I think the other side of that is um, once we find out what actually went on and what's happening, we sort of understand a little bit more about Alabaster's insistence and uh, the necessity of of actually doing. So essentially, you know, the... They prevent the an apocalypse. I'm not going to say the apocalypse, but an a possibly <laughs> this world truly am. A, a- apocalyptic event. And you know, maybe not even. I, I think that you say Yellowstone uh, event, but I think this is more like a uh, you know maybe Mount St. Helens or uh, Reykjavik kind of thing where it's disturbing to the world, but you know, in the grand scale of things.
0: They use a number scale to describe it, which they never bother to define. Where she describes it as being something like a ten, but we never really know what that means. Presumably, it's bad.
2: We, all, we only it, learn if there are like numbers higher than it later in the book, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it it would not have been a good event for the immediate for the immediate environs.
1: Yeah. Um, and again, you know, there are so many other things that we need to like figure out in the. In, the generality of the world that um, again we'll get to later on because um, they're not particularly plot relevant at the moment Um, but eventually uh, Cyanite sort of convinces Alabaster like we need to rest for a little while and then they proceed to the node um, and as far as I can tell and you know we got into a little bit of the sort of weird uh, vocabulary of this world but nodes are in at least small comms or or mm-hmm. because of the and it it really frustrates me that com is spelt c-o-m-m um <laughs> because my hearing and assumption was it was c-a-l-m and that just made way more sense to me
0: but i get that it's community
1: Sorry. or whatever <laughs> and it's fine
0: um they're definitely either in small comms or immediately in the virons of them because they seem like they're supplied by them. But when they go to this node, I kind of got the notion that if there was a community around it, it was either very small or maintaining a great deal of quiet because they don't really address much about what the surrounding environment is until they arrive at the walls of the node itself.
1: Yeah, I guess I, I sort of think that it's vaguely perfunctory. And I also imagine that these are sort of like fort slash outposts yeah. More than like actual cities, yeah. but sometimes mm-hmm. actual cities may be sort of around them. And sure. so, do you think that every city has a node? No. No. So, how do you think that network kind of springs up? Because, so, like, I guess the presumption is that Alia doesn't have a node or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, at least what they want to do is outside of a node maintainer's purview. But how is that network like set up? So do you imagine nodes being more like um, rest stops on an interstate? And so they're <laughs> never actually in a city, but they're sort of reasonably spaced and nece- the the city being there necessitates a rest stop kind of thing.
2: It seems to me that it's a little bit of all of it. I think that my my impression anyway is that they... That nodes spring up first and foremost because of um, increased kind of geologic activity um, mm-hmm. in the area, right? That they're, oh. they're naturally placed where they're needed. Um, now, I can see potentially a system where, like, we have, a, we have a lot of evidence at this point that there are vastly differing um, levels of wealth in different cities and regions um, in this world. And so I can certainly see a possibility that like people who can maintain nodes or communities that can maintain nodes near them for protection might do so um, and pay to have that done. But my impression, I mean, this node seems to be kind of in the middle of nowhere, um, Mm -hmm. but seems to be able to draw on a lot of tectonic activity that is going on around it. So that kind of makes me think that they tend to spring up um, at kind of intersections of different plates and things that are kind of causing more activity that needs to be quelled.
1: Gotcha. And (laughs) I guess the other thing that I just remembered, and, you know, had I maybe read the book more recently, is that they had to leave the high road for this. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's not clear whether the node is on the high road or not, because the most direct route to it was sort of a treacherous route, which was why they didn't go immediately or right. one of the reasons that they didn't go immediately. But again, that sort of leads to like, where the hell are these their nodes and yeah. why are they placed that way? And I guess it, to, to speak to your point, Sarah, like it wouldn't make sense if they were on faults or areas of high seismic activity, but that just sort of seems to be everywhere.
2: Right. But you also like, maybe you wouldn't also like build the high road in the most, <laughs> the most right. active part so it's, yeah, it's difficult and I'm not sure, but that was my, that was kind of my impression of how they, how they came about and how they started to choose where they might be. Yeah. Like, yeah. you
1: know, you'd put, you know, cell towers like towards the top of mountains, but you wouldn't have roads going right by them. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's providing a service that you want near those roads and communities and whatever else. But, you know, it doesn't make sense to have a passageway or anything else right next to it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And Sarah, I very much agree with your interpretation of where I think particularly in the equatorial regions where the uh, old Sands Empire is still the strongest and where most of those of wealth and station reside, that the, the nodes are stationed as necessary and maybe even beyond what is necessary to provide the max degree of stability for the surrounding communities so that, those, so that we see the um, you know, massive glass towers that's described as existing in the capital city that aren't really practically possible anywhere. But once we get out to like, the mid-lotter regions... Uh, the nodes are, sta- are spaced uh, distantly at best. Yeah, we, hear, we see in the earliest of chapters, um, before we really even know, know what's necessarily going on, that for the real mid-lotter communities that are out in the middle of nowhere, they just endure whatever happens with respect to these tectonic activities. They, c- comms are erased, comms are rebuilt. It's just a matter of daily course. While in the equatorial regions, we hear talk of nodes literally burning themselves out and dying in the process preventing even literally apocalyptic events from occurring. So I, I think it's both, they're stationed, particularly in the regions, where necessity requires, but there is definitely a class element associated with it that once you get farther out from the uh, focus of civilization, that uh, level of assignment to where they are necessary gets more and more sparse. So Sarah, now that you've uh, moved from a
1: more, you know, mid light. uh, <laughs> Area to a more equatorial area where there's better node coverage.
0: <laughs> Man, we're working this extended metaphor. Go on.
1: Yes. Do, do you feel that, do you really feel that you're in a, a more um, populous or, or, or better area of the world?
0: And how do you feel that your cell phone technology is powered by a forsaken child?
2: <laughs> well, I don't think mine is because we don't have any cell phone coverage in our house. Um, so I th- <laughs> Um, well, I, which I so maybe we're the node I'm <laughs> not sure we might, we might be the node <laughs> um.
0: Well c- continuing off what I just kind of hinted at right there um, after they spend a night of where Cyanite convinces Alabaster that there's no real point in committing suicide before going to their destination by trying to go off the high road in the middle of an evening when they can't see and they're utterly exhausted by the next morning they go out to this node which seems as you guys described pretty remote um, that they arrived at this walled compound that doesn't seem to have much of the way of a city around it or anything else. But they quickly discovered that this node and those that are inside it is essentially dead. There is no activity inside, those that they find indoors are flash frozen in place, died in mid-step, even down to the horses in the stables, as they slowly work their way to the uh, inner focus of the node, which cyanide has still even as she's going through this she really doesn't she's never been here she's only heard what the fulcrum says about what a node is she's kind of lost in discovering as she goes on the other hand I think it's pretty safely stated that Alabaster has been to many a node before and is very directly aware of what he's about to find inside it
1: yeah I I think it's very obvious that he knows exactly what's going on and then I think that as readers this is the first Time where you really begin to appreciate what an uncontrolled Taurus or icing circle or sort of whatever you want to call it can do.
0: Mm. Uh, We've previously seen an element of it back in the early chapters of the I think this is the first moment of how devastating on a large scale it is, of where whatever this community was, it is dead now as a result of whatever the power of the origin that resides within is. Just Literally in mid-step, in just a flash second, that the the world itself has frozen solid.
3: I'm, I'm trying so, to remember
0: because I I feel like there was a little bit more in the way of like people
1: around, or at least people that they could talk to, and sort of then Alabaster saying like, "Well, this is clearly what happened to the node maintainer," but maybe I'm mis, I'm I'm probably confusing that with uh, yeah, I'm definitely confusing that w- w- with what would happened at oh, Alia, yeah, but anyway. Sorry,
0: go ahead. Well, Sarah, you're about to say something.
2: Um, well, yeah, so they they make their way through the kind of ice people, horses, animals that are kind of around. And then we get like to the node maintainer. Um, mm-hmm. proper did, right.
0: Did did either of you expect what we just what we find in this node maintainer room, because I definitely did.
2: No, and this is what what I was. This this was going to be sort of my point is was that you know we talked a lot about and and we talked a lot kind of in in the reading process of the um, unexpectedness and cruelty of Shafa's breaking Demaya's hand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this moment and what we find with the node maintainer is a moment of just such, both, I mean, I, so we get the sort of like cruelty of the fulcrum, right? Um, which we can talk about what they find, You find, but you get the, the cruelty of the fulcrum, but then you also, in kind of the backstory that you get around it, around, around what is happening to the node maintainer, you get the casual cruelty of this world. Um, mm-hmm. And the casual cruelty of how Origins are really, really treated, Um and what is going on in the system. And so that that kind of confluence, it was just devastating.
0: Yeah, I think, I think we, we'd kind of gotten it on a personal level with Demaya, but this is our first real exposure, just to the, the nature of the immorality that allows this world to function. I mean, we talked about before that in some ways, much can be justified in the fact that they're able to prevent the apocalyptic forces that work on a daily basis in this world this is our first real chance to look into what the cost of that is mm-hmm. that as they go into this node maintainer's room, which we previously heard from Cyanite was just you know, a rebellionist person that was unable to submit to the authority of the fulcrum, we instead find a quite literally forsaken child a, a person that has been lobotomized and left in a constant state of semi-instinctual awareness to draw on the fact that even a baby in the crib who is an origin can silence earthquakes around them and by keeping them in a state of stripped any higher function, but maintaining this kind of instinctual, constant maintaining of the stability away from the earthquakes that are otherwise existing in the world. These nodes function. They provide the security by which the world operates and the world goes round through submitting an individual to constant, everlasting pain, torment, and confusion, and sedation. So
1: um, mm-hmm. I, I guess you're description of it and and what i thought of immediately when i was reading it is of the uh precogs and
0: minority report yeah it's very much drawing from the customer kind of thing there
1: yeah um and it's sort of very uh reminiscent of they're hooked up to a lot of different tubes and wires and and things like that um Probably somewhere between a mix of Minority Report and uh, The Matrix, where you know the the hordes and hordes of humans hooked up to uh, the the farms, and we're not going to get into that. But basically, how uh, these node maintainers and our basically harvested and used for the power to keep the world stable. This
0: is another one of the moments where uh, we'll eventually go into this, BJ, because I know you want to, but this really demonstrates the tech that powers this world in terms of, most of the world seems to operate in, t- in a, a semi-medieval setting, but the technology that is at play in keeping this Dode Maintainer alive, conscious, and functional is heavy 20th century in terms of what they're using to keep this guy going. Okay, re- so,
1: so you say medieval, but... Essun's, as as hu- like, husband was known for being able to nap glass knives. Mm-hmm. That's, like, way prehistoric.
0: It, it, as said, it is schizotech. We get little tastes of, a ver- of technology from everywhere that, at least in our world, would be wildly inconsistent, would be wildly incongruous to have functioning at the same time without issue or complaint. Yeah, But in this world, perfectly operate fine. We see that the level of metalworking is essentially, as you said, primeval in the sense that glass knives are almost exclusively what they use. Their level of um, world-building technology varies remarkably between what is straight-up midi- straight medieval in terms of mid- midlands versus what is a modern 20th century paradise in uh, the uh, capital city. And we see in this technology that it was maintaining these individuals... <sighs> It's either that the technology is wildly inconsistent as a result of the fact that this world is so foreign to ours, they just lack certain necessary precursors or necessary resources that allow ours to function, or technology is very starkly divided up between the haves and the have-nots and who maintains it and who hasn't. But I think we see it readily apparent in terms of what allows these nodes to function being far in excess of what we've seen previously in the story.
2: Well, and I think, you know, I'm I'm sure we'll talk about, talk more in depth about this later, but I think, Spencer, your point about, like, there is certainly a divide in the technology between the haves and have-nots, um, but there is also a specific divide. I mean, this is kind of, like, the function of the fifth seasons, right? Um, we have all of this, like, archaeological or um, even just evident remnants of what they call dead sieves, um, which is presumably where a lot of the kind of technological advances come from but it seems like at every iteration of the kind of death of a civilization and the birth of a new one um quite literally this is not like a rise and fall of empires this is like most of the world died um (laughs) and then they rebuilt somehow is that you know somehow or some some types of knowledge survived whereas others were completely wiped out And so I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the inconsistency, or at least in my mind, the inconsistency that we see in the technology can be somewhat explained in this world by the idea that, like, I don't know, some people, all of the people died who knew how to, like, forge steel instead of napping knives. Um, And so we're Mm -hmm. sort of starting from ground zero at that point. Yeah. So, Um, again,
1: I, I hate to do this. To, to say this is what something that we're going to talk about in, you know, two episodes. <laughs> but, but we have
2: to keep going. <laughs> well, well, we have
1: to keep going. But I do want to mention, and one of the things that I find super interesting, is one of their curses is rusting. Yeah, Yeah. And so very yeah. clearly that has some relation, and metal work and whatever, has some relation to some apocalyptic issues that they've had in this world. Yep. But... Um, so so we were just sort of discussing like, so they've happened on this essentially abandoned child um, who yeah. I think, you know, sort of according to the book is, you know, somewhere like 8, 9, 10, 11, somewhere around there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and um, the child's clearly dead and there are loads of people around it. And then we sort of find out a little bit more about the life of a known maintainer and what happens to them.
2: And this is the sort of the like casual cruelty of the world um, Mm -hmm. that I was talking about, because like all of this is real fucked up. Um, But there is at least part of it that you can at least explain in terms of like the needs of the fulcrum or the needs of the world. Right. Um, Which doesn't make it any better and does not make the life of this known maintainer any less of a travesty of human existence, but you know, there is an explanation there, but then we get in this sort of like deadpan alabaster way, um, a kind of, a, an explanation of what the actual day to day of this child would have been, as well as what the, um, what set off
0: the triggering of
2: Yes.
1: Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I guess I would liken this to, um, a little bit more Ramsey Bolton, in the oh my uh, God. general yeah. world of uh, yeah. Game of Thrones where it's just yeah. like okay this place isn't good but holy shit that's another we just got so much Level. worse yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah and so anyway my i feel like my purpose in these scenes is to set up what is happening without actually having to explain <laughs> what is happening because i really don't want to um, and then so i feel like somebody I'm take it make... away
1: yeah, I'm going to make Spencer do it, and then we're going to judge him for the actual words that he used to describe it.
0: Perfect. Man, this has been just like the prior 15 years of our relationship, just in one sentence right there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, as we already previously discussed, uh, well, let me just reveal a key detail which just makes this all the more personally tragic for our main characters involved. Um, it is strongly suggested to border on, bordering on straight up said in this scene that this node maintainer and later learn possibly... All node maintainers, yeah, at Certainly least a large several, majority or
1: yeah, yeah. a plurality mm-hmm. of maintainers
0: are alabas- alabasters, um, yeah. which seems in large part part of the point by which they've engaged in the breeding regime with him and every other up-and-coming student that's going through the fulcrum is to continue to staff these various nodes that allow civilization to be possible, particularly in the equatorial regions. But. By- Keeping at bay Father Earth and all of his tendencies to destroy his children upon his surface.
1: And I think the the other side of it is Alabaster has no idea. And I think that
0: does he? Um, I thought he did. I, I thought part of the, that's part of the reason he wanted her to go to the fault, go to the node.
1: I think that he knows that many of his children and have ended up as node maintainers, but I don't know that he has met and or interacted or know any of his other children. And I think that becomes really important later on. Okay. No, that's, I guess that's that, was, true. That, that, that was that was my concept. With you on. Yeah, that it was. He knows that many of his children have ended up as known maintainers but he has no idea which ones are his, and he just has never really met them, seen them, or anything else.
0: I, yeah. I would strongly doubt he's ever been allowed inside a node to be where he is right now to really see it. And as much as he knows about it on paper, as much as he has a conceptual awareness of what is the fate of his children this is probably his first time directly confronting it i think in this way interesting
1: because i i feel like he's been a number of he's been enough to know like what goes on what's there and what happens but it's still so
3: so gut-wrenching
1: and soul piercing that it doesn't matter if you've seen it one time ten times maybe even a hundred times it's it's not okay
0: yeah I'm with you there. Uh, so, well, as we kind of already described, essentially the uh, Alabaster's children, the non-maintainers, to the degree those two are separate, are kept in a perpetual state of semi, um, uh, semi-awareness as they have been had their higher functions, higher mental capabilities, utterly removed any of them, um, and are left in a state of semi-consciousness for no other purpose than to act on their instinctual awareness to prevent earthquakes from happening, to benefit the world for the greater good, if you matter. That alone is horrendous. That alone is tragic. That alone is a constant state of pain and agony for the sake of everybody else, day to day peace and uh, peace and peace of mind. What makes this all the worse, though, is that the of Jamerson chooses to give us even added cruel, added casual cruelty upon this. The a perspective on how little rights and um, worth these node maintainers are viewed in society. That on top of this horrendous burden that is placed upon them for the sake of society functioning, for the sake of the sense of culture and world to persist as it has through so many fifth season four. We also see that the uh, various node maintainers have very little regard for the uh, well-being or rights of their charges these nodes, as we find, at least from Alabaster's description, that it is a not uncommon event for the node maintainers to sell the rights to the body of these particular... uh, node maintainers to whatever citizens have the coin and political wherewithal necessary to buy it as we find in the particular alcove inside the node station a civilian that has no business being there that it is strongly suggested was had paid for the right to take liberties with this utterly helpless and unresisting individual as part of their particular twisted desires And if at this point you are just not reeling at the level of wrongness that has been brought before you as part of not only maintaining this world, but just the casual, unnecessary cruelty that is allowed to operate in it, I question your humanity and ability to continue reading this text.
1: Yeah, and I think this is sort of where I got the concept that Alabaster has been to other nodes before, where I think it mentions something like the presence of bruises and... certain places is not uncommon and things like that, and if you're imagining the worst, then yes, that's what is heavily implied. That's fair. I forgot about that part. <laughs> um. Yeah, I I wish I could. Um, I, I think that N.K. Jameson does a really good job of making the horrors of a completely alien civilization apparent and real yeah. and okay. in a very relatable
0: is not the right word uh, but a a uh, visceral way she, she does an excellent job of giving enough giving you enough to convince you of something before confront before confronting you with something that just fundamentally undermines that or at least gives you a complete a more complete perspective on what it is we've heard before that the sans culture is the only one that has survived fifth seasons before it's the only one to endure that it's stone lore it's use of the fulcrum the way it operates is essential for culture to continue to exist, for life to continue to persist on this world we've spent a couple hundred paces having that being drilled into our skulls about how essential it is that the various plans the various workings of sans culture persist that they work if nothing else and now we're directly confronted with the fact that yes they work but at what fundamental cost to our sense of justice our nature of humanity i don't know they make the trains run on time so to, to draw from Mussolini, yeah,
1: um, and so this is the first time that Cyanide is sort of confronted with what society is and what society really does to origins that don't, we'll say, play by the rules, and and so this is as, as you sort of mentioned, like this. Presumably, at least to a certain extent, might have been a somewhat ulterior motive of Alabaster to show Cyanite what it is that that underlies the society that she hasn't really been a part of because she's spent much of her formative time at the Fulcrum, but has spent some time outside of it, so isn't completely indoctr- indoctrinated. Um, and essentially, like, the other sort of beautiful part of this story... And it's insanity is that the response is, all right, well, we'll send word to the fulcrum that they need to replace the node maintainer and we need to go do our job. So it goes. And so they get back on the road and they go to Alia, which is not terribly far from the node
0: um and pretty much much our only description is that i think it's far it's on the coast and it's far in the east it's about it's about all it's about the only concept i have of where it is
1: yeah and and so there's this sort of other like i feel like it doesn't do the same it doesn't do a complete injustice to to travel where it's completely obviated um as in certain other works but there's a very weird sense of okay so they're traveling for a couple of weeks this is a day away and then they're traveling again and they arrive and i completely appreciate and understand it you know you don't want something like lord of the rings where you know 50% of the book is them walking on a road and that's it mm-hmm. but you know there there is sort of a very or a more difficult concept of getting from point a to point b uh, i
0: think there's Just two concepts to bring up on their journey that I think are kind of relevant, uh, just briefly. One is uh, we get from Alabaster the idea that stone lore is not as absolute and sacrosanct as Cyanide has been led to believe. And that as a result of his wanderings, as a result of his actual practice of archaeology, that he is aware that stone lore has changed over time, that various rules have been eliminated, that the current guidelines by which um, Sans' culture is governed have not always been in place and have actively changed over time based on apparently the particular circumstances of society. Hi, buddy. Th- Welcome.
2: Hey, buddy. <laughs>
0: the dog has to show up at some point. It's required. It's customary.
1: So, um, the other mm-hmm. thing that I want to say is I'm going to do my damnest not to spoil uh, Mistborn while we're talking <laughs> about this. But it's going to be tough for me, but for everybody that's read Mistborn, it's really similar to the uh, You know, the metal tablets. So, you know, there's a bunch of information that's written down and it's specifically inscribed in stone, and, you know, it's been supposedly passed down faithfully, except for what hasn't is completely wrong. So.
3: (laughs) Well, I
0: mean, it's an interesting enough concept because, again, this is all part of Alabaster's goal to teach Sinai that the rules that you live by are only as fixed as you wish them to be, as the culture that you live in imposes upon you. And The exposure to archaeology, the exposure to the idea that there were different roles for different people at different times, is just the opening as part of his continued education and mentorship to her to really broaden her perspectives to what not only the world is, but what she can be in it. Uh, The Node only continues that. Another thing to bring up, which we saw in terms of his uh, silencing of whatever this hot spot was that the Node had created, um, is the uh, obelisks themselves. We discussed them a little bit in Demaya's chapter. but broadly. BJ, uh, you had a good description last time of how you conceptualized them to be. Could you just repeat that for us? Uh, yeah, y- you're you're assuming that I remember.
1: Um, <laughs> give, give it a try.
0: So, uh, otherwise I could take it out.
1: I mean, I, I guess so my concept is sort of a, a, a large shining chunk of sump rock, but somewhere between a uh, weird low-hanging satellite and uh, you know, essentially piece of art. Mm-hmm. Um, and And so... They're
0: definitely a leftover of one of the prior dying civilizations, like so many of the other of the artifacts and ruins that that, uh, inhabit this world. Sure. I have so many
1: questions about um, obelisks, (laughs) and uh, as I remember... Uh, no, that's later. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, so that definitely comes up shortly in in Cyanite's uh, chapters. So, why don't we wander on to Alia, and then we can talk a lot more about obelisks and what they might contain, maybe as a general rule, um, mm-hmm. once we okay. get to that point. Sarah, well, the, the, and I I'm will. Sorry, Sarah, I, well,
2: I was gonna say I I, I will say I, I read the second book several years ago. Um, but one thing I do remember, which I, is not like super spoilery, um, but you learn, perhaps unsurprisingly, must, much more about obelisks um, in the second book.
1: That's titled Obelisk Gate. That yes, that that, that, that <laughs> tracks. I get that. Okay,
0: nothing hidden there. No. Yeah. So
2: just to remind us all, I suppose, of of the obvious. but. I do, I do think it's interesting because you get like this book is very clearly it does not know no, none of our characters know really anything about the obelisks um right. or what they can do they're kind of feeling out in the moment what what they might be capable of um and what they themselves might be capable of through the obelisk um but that does continue to develop yeah, in yeah. the second one so <laughs>
0: it's fun with this book there is no omniscient narrator we know nothing more than our characters do we know nothing more about how this culture works than by how they describe it and even their use of language going about it so to the degree that characters like alabaster are just willfully opaque it's because they are and because cyanide has no better read on him than we do to the degree the obelisks seem constantly mysterious and cloaked and, and cloaked in just hidden wisdom because they are, because neither Alabaster or Cyanite know anything more than we see them do with them over the course of the story. And that just makes for a lot of fun. Yeah, as we feel like we're unlocking this at the same time the characters. Are. And and as well, Sarah essentially
1: mentioned that there are other books in the series and it is trilogy. But I feel like um, there are trilogies where the, a book does not feel like a full story, and I feel like mm-hmm. this is yeah. this is one where it it really does. Like you know, yeah. I. I am very happy that it continues, but I am happy in the story that it
0: tells and where it finishes.
2: No, you could end here. You can end with this book and be done.
0: Um. Other than the last line being one hell of a (laughs) Sure. Yeah. um. But I, I agree. It is a very, though it leaves open mysteries, though it does not even attempt to explain the full oddities and scope of this world, it tells a complete arc for each of its characters or its one character over the course of this tale, which is very satisfying, even if it is ultimately incomplete.
3: Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, kind of reminiscent of a portal game. Um, so <laughs> uh, so they ed- end up in Alia.
2: Yes. <laughs> so so but, essentially, but, they, they quickly end cum. up
1: in Al- yes. Alia. And um, and the, essentially, the first thing that happens in Alia is they, they find a place to stay um, and make essentially arrangements to meet with a governor and then they hang out in their hotel room and alabaster gets sick and after about 30 pages of
0: bureaucratic wrangling
2: well out of at 30 pages of bureaucratic wrangling as well as we get back as opposed to the kind of like acute um <laughs> pain and trauma of the node and the node maintainer we get back to the sort of everyday discrimination um yeah. <laughs>
0: origin against
2: ragas right and yeah. and that like the bureaucratic wrangling is intimately tied up in that type of discrimination. um the sort of just everydayness of well you were supposed to meet with the governor or lieutenant governor or whoever it is but we're sending a minor functionary and this minor functionary is going to be sort of just dismissive of you if not outright um
1: I don't, so, see, so in my memory, like, this is after Elabesker gets sick. And I know it's more played out after that.
2: Um, it starts they before. They, they, right. Yeah, they meet, the, both of them meet with...
0: The minor function. The minor right. function. very briefly. First. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and she's scarcely polite. Yeah.
1: Um, and I think this is sort of where we get our further introduction
2: to safe... Yes, which I still, in my mind, am going to call Safe. I can't. <laughs> can <it>.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, basically, you know, you don't even offer us safe and stuff like that. And so, um there's this sort of tumultuous meeting with a minor functionary, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, we're performing a major function for your city. We, so, yeah.
2: oh, sorry, what they what they've been called there to do is that th- this is a sort of coastal trading town. Um, that has a relatively high amount of wealth, but specifically because ships can come in and out of the bay. Um, and there's been this coral growth that has been essentially taking over the entrance to the bay and causing the larger ships to not be able to enter, and it's continuing its growth and kind of encroachment um, on their bay, which in, in turn means it, in their trade and their wealth. Um, so they've called the fulcrum and origins from the fulcrum to um displace disintegrate the coral that is growing
1: yeah I, I was gonna relate this and and uh, I think Sarah like your your introduction is a little bit better, but I was gonna say they're essentially clearing up uh, Atlanta's airports because um, <laughs> Atlanta is basically an overgrown Delta hub and so you know once you take away the 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 airport you know they you know it's gonna wither and die so, um, it's those kind of connections to sure. our real world, which I really
0: think help our readers get a feeling of the text. PJ, thank you for that. Uh, w- one of the things I get out of this too, which as you guys said, we see very much played out the discrimination this world has for origins. We also this is one of the first times we get to see how members of the fulcrum are regarded in the wild. I think we pick up that the city of Ali itself is rather accepting when it comes to uh, most of the community's world, but it's pretty strongly indicated that were they not wearing their uh, black outfits that mark them at the fulcrum, they would probably be actively lynched in the streets. And even with these markers of the fulcrum, this minor functionary who has hired them at probably no small expense to come here to literally save their town, cannot even pretend to be polite, cannot even offer the various hallmarks of accepting a guest into your home, offering safe, the equivalent of bread and salt and water, uh, as to, wel- to welcome their community. And what's interesting, as much as Alabaster cannot be expected to give a damn about most things related to culture, politeness, or the requirements of the fulcrum, this is one thing that he refuses to just tolerate. Yeah. He, imme- he immediately demands and requires of this functionary in a way that she can't really resist that they be respected as members that you have paid for to be here, as specialists brought in for a particular purpose to save your community's economic future. Yeah, a little bit blazing saddles, uh, but not nowhere near as funny. Uh, and uh, they go through this no small amount of wrangling as they essentially just refuse to deal with this minor functionary because they requested the governor, and damn well they're going to get the governor because that's the person that hired them. And they return back to their hotel, which the minor functionary is essentially paying for on no small to no small expense. And while they're there, in a way that it's not at first explained, but later concluded to be an act of seemingly intentional poisoning, Alabaster almost dies.
1: Yeah. So so I think the the description, you know, they retire, have some food, uh, then retire to their bed, and then... Um,
0: Something resembling a seizure.
1: Yeah, well, so a seizure slash, basically a similar description to the orogeny that we had before, where uh, they're delving deep, but instead of going into the earth it's something super small and then after you know quite a bit of wrangling and uh alabaster using cyanide's power he vomits a bunch of and the obelisk yes Mm -hmm. Uh, alabaster vomits a bunch of uh clear gross liquid and then passes out is sort of um i guess i I now can't remember having gone through the the book twice where I sort of figured out that Cyanite was being recruited to help Alabaster get rid of his poison. Mm -hmm.
2: It's unclear um, in the moment, partially because we are kind of looking through Cyanite's... It's not a first-person narrative, but we are looking through her perspective, essentially. She has no idea what the fuck is going on um and so we are left to kind of try and suss out what is happening with her and i don't think she ever clearly states what what is happening it is it's more apparent on a second reading um but it's always a little murky in terms of what is happening yeah i was gonna say i think it's a couple
1: chapters later where she like is like oh oh that's what that
2: what must have been what happened yeah
1: Right. And sometimes as a reader, you figure it out a little bit before the characters, but usually not when it's happening.
2: No. Um, And this was so opaque um, Mm -hmm. that there was just no... I I challenge anyone to have figured out what was happening in the moment of what, what was going on here.
1: Yeah. It's not super obvious, and it's also very reminiscent of the previous experience where Alabaster just takes her power and does something, and similar as you, uh, so uh, well described it, Spencer, as you know the Yellowstone event, Um, and so it was very similarly described, but very clearly being somehow different. Um, she she's,
0: she seemed to have a lot more agency over this time than she did with the last, or at least much more opportunity to understand what's going on than directly imposed upon her by Alabaster the first time.
1: Yes, and so I guess my reading on this is Alabaster sort of yanked her in and it was just like, there's a problem. I need your Save help me. in taking care of this. <laughs> yeah. And so then like, well, here are the reins because I'm incapacitated dying. yes dying it, you know whatever deal with it and so she's sort of i guess the fumbles her way through of essentially a cancerous surgery where it's just like all right well this doesn't quite look right so i'm gonna take
0: it out i hope that's okay um it's also one of the first moments that we see that uh, these obelisks to the degree that we may have written them off previously is just kind of floating relics appear to have a certain degree of personal connection to characters that have interacted with them before. As she looks up in the sky and with absolute certainty knows that the obelisk that Alabaster previously interacted with at the hotspot is just hanging out right above them, waiter, waiting for waiting for further command. And draws from it as an ability of linking their power, concentrating their power to save his life. Though he's left pretty heavily weakened for most of, for several of the next chapters in the story.
1: Yeah. And so uh, this leaves Cyanide alone to then deal with the obstruction, dealing with the bureaucracy, and uh,
0: essentially complete their stated mission alone. I I love how oil and water the two of these people are that they can't even have a civil conversation over what happened to him and who tried, and and what nearly caused his death. Yeah, that uh, they are of polarly opposite views at least to start over what happened of where Sinex tries to write it off and of where, ah, you know, somebody, somebody opens an old can and, you know, a botulism happens. <laughs> Whereas um, it appears that Alabaster has a little bit more exposure to the actual world and just kind of shruggingly writes it off as just that, oh yeah, people hate our genes and somebody tried to kill me. That's another Tuesday for me. But not much, we don't really, I don't think we ever really get fully, we don't, we have no one confirmed to us what exactly happened other than it seems the book and the characters agree with Alabaster that this was an intentional assassination attempt on him and quite possibly her too if she hadn't kind of skipped the meal.
2: Yeah, and whether that came from kind of the town writ large or from this minor functionary that they've um, interacted with and had bad dealings with or whether it comes from a sort of order from the powers that be, it's it's left unclear, right? Very much
0: so. Um, uh, it it adds to the paranoia that just really encapsulates the storyline for them at going forward.
2: Yeah, and so Alabaster is out of commission at this yeah. point, right? Um, alive, recovering, but not really with it in any in any way, shape, or form. And so Cyanite goes the next day to deal with things.
0: Yeah, to the harbor to meet with the much more friendly and like a, and sociable. Uh, Somewhat more major functionary, I suppose. Yeah. I think she's the deputy governor.
2: Yes. Um, who Cyanite seems to really like. Um, oh, yeah. She, ju- she I mean, works well offer Yeah, she just seems like a likable person. Um, but who is, quite rightly, I think, both def- deferential to Cyanite as well as um, condemning, that may be too strong a word, but um, disciplining of this sort of whoever this functionary was that we were dealing with before.
0: This person seems to have a much better understanding of what the balance of power really is. Yes, that you may be able to discriminate against individual origins, but you do not hurt our relationship with the fulcrum. Right, we we exist at their whim and their good grace and their willingness to do business with us. And so she quickly makes a sacrificial lamb out of this um, somewhat more junior functionary by making her responsible for all of the expenses of these two origins in their midst. Yeah, I guess I blame her for all misconduct previously.
1: I guess I the other thing that I got from this was um, sometimes there are people in an organization that sort of don't understand the impact that something is having. And so I guess my read on it was, look, I get it. Everybody hates origins and they're gross and disgusting and whatever. But like, seriously, if we don't get their help, we're going to have we're going to have our harbor blocked and that's going to destroy our entire city. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe this person was a little bit more on the like origins are acceptable, but probably
0: just more pragmatic as you're in that.
1: Yeah. I, I, I guess this is the, um, you know, we, we were sort of vaguely talking before this episode started about the, uh, old boys in the South um and i guess that's sort of a little bit more my this person may or may not have prejudices against origins or not but realizes that you have to at least be polite um Mm -hmm. and maybe this person's a little bit further on the like i can be polite and friendly to anybody and i kind of like cyanide and so it's fine as opposed to the I dislike this person for what they are and who they are, which the more minor functionary couldn't get past the, this is an origin and I'm not okay with this.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, in, in terms of what uh, happens at the harbor, it's another one of those scenes that we're just kind of trying to keep up with the events that occur, because it's not like the characters have any better understanding than we do as to what's happening. Yeah. But Sinet's tasked with examining this harbor and quickly finds the coral that's blocking the entrance or starting to block the entrance. But then finds what's causing it to do such. That there is a outcrop that is forcing the coral up into the harbor, reducing the clearance for the ships. That is not rock. That is not metal. That is not, from her perspective, anything at all. It is just a void, which is something she has never experienced before. That's something that she can't sense. Um, she Sess. Ra- Sess. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> Feel like I, need to take, I feel like I need to take a, sec- a second language course to understand, to uh, speak the language <laughs> of this book at times. Yes. But she can't assess it, and that's very foreign and very uncomfortable to her. It's very strongly implied that's never happened before, mm-hmm. in her, all of her training, all of her experience.
1: So I have a question before mm-hmm. you continue too far. Um, so with Orogeny in general, for the most part, it seems to be focused on going down and into the earth but very clearly that's not the only thing that can happen because we get a chunk of demaya's story where you know she can feel the doors about her and things sort of above and below her is there something unique about this obelisk that makes it empty is this the first time that she can feel an obelisk or the last thereof do people generally not like probe upwards outwards whatever or Is this a unique situation in reference to obelisks, or is this the general situation in reference to obelisks?
0: We know for a fact that she has interacted with obelisks before. We've seen that played out two times over the course of her character arc so far. But not
1: that she's cessed.
0: Is cessing an active thing or just something that they constantly feel? She has literally touched one and used it to link the magic of origins together with them she has at least some prior history Um, so
1: so i guess what i would maybe best liken this to is like maybe you can smell things like you can you know sniff things around you and understand it and smell it and whatever and that's a sense that you use and you can see things, and you don't need to smell something to use it you don't need to see something to use it. And so most of the time when you navigate about yourself, you see things, And that's how you, many and or most people like interact with a lot of the things that they use. But that's not always like the sense that that is necessary for doing whatever it is. And so I would say that she has never used an obelisk. An obelisk was used with her. Um, and her sessing of it or whatever was never in question. Um, and so I guess that's why I have that question in general.
2: Well, and I I think, oh, go ahead, Spencer. No, please go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think, um, the, the active versus passive of kind of sessing is, is interesting because it does feel like, like origins are sessing Passively, kind of all the time, um, but I do think that that cessing can be directed, and it, it based on experience, they are always cessing downwards um, and mm-hmm. cessing into into the earth. I don't think it's ever occurred to her to try to cess upwards in any way, and maybe she was never close enough, really. Um, to an obelisk before this. But it does seem like now she has been brought in contact with him. And if we are going to go on this sort of like sensory metaphor, um, it's the sort of like once you 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 are going about your day and you have never realized that three townhouses down, they are power washing the deck um, at an obnoxious click. But once you notice the, the whining of the power washer it is always there with you. Like that seems to be how she is dealing or how she is dealing with the obelisks and maybe how obelisks kind of interact with people.
1: Yeah. Uh, So do we need to talk to your neighbors? Um, (laughs) And, uh, and that's why I was sort of likening it to smell because I feel like that's such a very passive thing that happens. And sometimes things become apparent enough or potent enough that we notice. But for the most part, like unless you're actively doing it, it's not something that, that you really notice unless something's amiss.
2: Or or maybe
1: if you have Or intrusive.
2: Left yeah, if you have left an area where there was something you were sort of passively smelling but you were used to and then come right. back into it again, right? Um, yeah. All of that it, seems seems right in my understanding of how these obelisks work.
0: My bias at this point, and I don't think it's any su- going to be su- any surprise reveal to say that there is an obelisk buried underneath this harbor, which is forcing up, which is forcing up the coral. <laughs> oh yeah, right, um, yeah, yeah, Is that this obelisk that she raises essentially accidentally as she's trying to clear um, the coral from the harbor, um, almost in some ways responding to the origin that she's origin orogeny that she's wielding right now, is described extensively as being different from the others. talked about as being damaged, it's talked about as being dead, it's talking about as being inert and a void in a way that the other ones aren't. So there is a lot of effort made to say that this one is in many ways distinct from the other Opelists that experiences or observes, Um, which I think bears noting about maybe why she feels a bit of a void about it, that it may well be, from the perspective of Orogeny or whatever else powers these things, undead or dead or at least so distinct from the others that it's on a different plane of understanding
1: so my memory of what happens and given that this is fairly far removed from my going through the story is that she essentially does what she can to clear this obstruction um after she spends a bunch of time advising like all of the you know five Uh, to ten other things they can do (laughs) yeah like all the things that they can do what they should do because she because it's weird and it's not something that you know just clearing away the coral is going to take care of and they say you know just take care of it we we paid you just fucking do your job um and what is put fairly nicely but on sort of reading it a second time is kind of like a Uh, This is your purpose in life. Like, why are we having this conversation?
0: Um, And also practically that they can't really afford any of the alternatives. That they've kind of really invested heavily in this working and trying to bring in the right way to do it through science or whatever else would be long, time-consuming, and no more certain necessarily to work.
1: Yeah. Um, So she does her orogeny, and basically this obelisk pops up like one of those... uh, clown punching (laughs) bag and it's she sort of zooms in on this um I guess I don't... I, I can't describe it the way N.K. Jamison does because she does a really good job of describing it and not actually saying what it is, but it's very clearly
0: a dead stone eater. Right, Like a bug in amber, I think she describes it as, essentially. Just in the middle of this obelisk, just right. hanging hang there. And,
1: you know, sort of a vaguely human shape, but like clear hair and just, you know, human but not. And, and she's very clearly describing me a dead stone eater and the obelisk is cracked. Mm-hmm. And when it sort of raises up it sort of lists and I mean if you were to personify it it's sort of a broken hobbling old man but it's a you know
0: massive piece of I think amethyst that's shattered which is just now hanging over the harbor in Alia uh, and as as N.K. Jameson loves to do she just ends the chapter right there and just returns to it about 30 or 40 pages later <laughs>
1: yeah um, and to quote another author, it ha- hung in the air in the way that bricks don't. <laughs> okay, who said that, please?
0: Douglas Adams. That was t- that is a very Douglas Adams line. Thank you. <laughs> um, so this is a new addition to the Alia Harbor. Uh, in many ways, Cyanet has completed her mission. She cleared the coral pretty much a few seconds into wielding her orogeny. But now Alia has a new tourist attraction that they didn't previously expect. Yes. Yeah scientists and um, origins from around the world flock to come view this new magical artifact of times gone by that is now gracing the Alia Harbor. I don't And the know fulcrum.
2: That, oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think the fulcrum
1: has interest there, but I don't remember that origins converge. I remember that it's, it's like geomest right. and whatever. Well, we'll put scientists in quotes because <laughs> uh, I feel like that's not super clear. Um, but it also... <laughs> semi causes a tsunami um and so there is a bunch of destruction that's associated with this but it's sort of unclear as to how
0: bad it was but it wasn't i don't know that like don't they suggest that alabaster kind of nipped it into the bud or something
2: no alabaster was incapacitated and really couldn't do anything um for this alia itself was not affected um
1: okay i thought there was like a I thought there was, like, some property destruction,
0: essentially, from there being, like,
2: not Tsunami Tsunami, but, bit, yeah. yeah. Um, to,
0: to the degree it was, to the degree there was, it's rapidly forgotten based on what happens in the next chapter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, the other side of it is I think that, like, Cyanide doesn't know and doesn't care about what happened because, in terms of, like, what happened to the city, because, holy shit, she just touched a obelisk and it appeared and now it's kind of like looming above her and then you know a bunch of gms and everybody else just started like coming into the city and trying to find out like what the hell just happened
2: well and and in response the fulcrum very quickly sends messages saying don't fucking move
0: yeah stay there yeah yeah wait
1: for further updates and it's sort of at this point that I mean not too long thereafter alabaster sort of recovers and is just like wait what happened yeah. we need to get the fuck out of here
0: yeah it, it, worth noting you you kind of mentioned the level of lack of caring that cyanide has it's a it, it is it it merits attention that um, the world you know the world itself has any number of impolite and uh, discriminatory terms and thoughts for origins and the origins themselves most likely in response to the foul treatment from the world have their own derogatory terms for the rest of humanity and their own level of disdain and lack of caring for their well-being that we see play out over the course of the story. That uh, I'll call uh, the vast majority of humanity is referred to by Origenes as just stills, given their lack of any connection to the uh, seismic activity that wraps up in this world. And we see over the course of this, and particularly in some of these chapters with Cyanide, uh, they, from the fact that humanity, the rest of humanity doesn't treat them very well and other reasons, don't have much respect or caring about the lives of stills other than just to write them off as being useless powerless and kind of tragic
1: i i think that that's overstating it a little bit but i guess i would liken it to some uh african-american writings and stories from the slavery area era in the u.s where whites are grouped and as a A large group, and usually in some ways ignored, other than how they treat uh, African Americans, and so it—it's. I I guess I feel like there's that sort of level of disdain and uncaring, but like a, but everybody's oppressing us.
0: I think that's an apt and intentional comparison for what N.K. Jameson is going through through their use of the terminology and their.
2: It is certainly an understanding of sort of complicity and oppression, that you don't have to be actively participating in, um, the, um, so you don't, you don't have to actively be participating as this sort of like functionary that we were talking about before, or the kind of like derogatory comments that are happening. Like it is, if you are not, if you are benefiting from the system, um, then you are complicit in the system. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, that's the way that, that's the way that cyanite functions. That is certainly the way that, that alabaster functions. Um, yeah. And it becomes and I don't relatively think it's clear in these. No, I don't think it's inappropriate at all. Um, but it, it certainly becomes clear in this sort of like what we get at this point is a little bit of a, a very brief lull um, as Alabaster and Cyanite have been told to stay there. Um, and mm-hmm. so they're like, well, I guess we're staying. Um, I guess this is like a little bit of a vacation or whatever. Uh, they're trying to avoid all of the stills around them. Um, because cyanide has raised this thing that nobody knows anything about. Um, so they're trying to be as just as low key as possible. Just sort of play it under the radar and don't make, (laughs) don't make waves. Yeah. And, and that's
1: (laughs) very much enforced by Alabaster because cyanide tries to talk to Alabaster and try and understand what's going on. And Alabaster is basically saying, no, we're not going to talk about this. This isn't safe. Like you can't talk about it. Yeah. And we also get a little bit of a window into the power of origins at this point. Because up until this point, it's sort of a given that origins have some control on tremors and seismic activity and things like that. But Alabaster basically says that a fairly competent origin can listen in on any conversation kind of anywhere that they want to within some boundary of their power.
0: Which is notable because Cyanide has no idea that that's even a thing. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting. that It's not that she does not yet have the power but understands she may someday. It's that that is a, a scope of their abilities that she's never had any prior exposure to or knowledge. Of.
1: And so essentially there's this like sort of slow uh dripping of knowledge that that alabaster gives sign at, about orogeny in general about um sort of a little bit about uh obelisks and that it's kind of surprising and weird and uh not something that she should let out that she was able to contact one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Th- that's not even clear like what that was how that was or anything
0: else and <laughs> He's, he's very uncomfortable with the fact that she pretty much published a full report to the Fulcrum about what she did how she did it.
1: But, like, I think he's kind of thankful that she doesn't really know what she did or how she did, and so it's just like, oh, crap, you said that, but, like, luckily you didn't know enough to actually say anything, so we'll see what happens. Um, and it's sort of in these conversations that they sort of have out and about that they're then confronted by some guardian.
0: Which is which is interesting when we reach that moment, because as you said, there, it's, it's a real calm before the storm of where they're really enjoying one of the few more peaceful and pleasant moments the two of them ever had. We're getting the closest thing we've yet had in the story to a frank conversation from Alabaster. Sinait's really enjoying the community and almost plotting a life there, even commenting that the stills are very polite and almost friendly with them, despite knowing that they're When suddenly, randomly, there is a guardian on the street. In front of them with no prior lead-in or expectation on the, or at least on cyanide's part why he's there.
2: And a guardian who is for reasons that we have no insight into at the moment, like in just taking his shirt off.
1: Yeah, takes his <laughs> shirt off <laughs> and and alabaster loses right his now. shit. Like yeah, alabaster <laughs> loses his shit, says, "Don't let him touch you." The dude takes out a knife. Goes to stab Alabaster, or goes to stab some uh, cyanite. Alabaster sort of somehow prevents that all from happening. He takes out another knife, stabs Alabaster, and everybody is out for the night.
0: Yeah, just something, some effect of this knife, which appears to be an utterly nondescript, like two inch or three inch blade, just reduces him to an immediate incapacitated seizure in a second. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then. I, I can't remember how so, Cyanite loses consciousness. I, I well, feel like well, she's choked
0: out. Well, They have another really weird conversation of where she effectively asks him if he's okay, and he just smiles all the broader at her as he's doing so and just thanks her for the courtesy as he moves in to kill her. Um, And she, in the moment of desperation, realizing that, that whatever the circumstances are, whatever, why ever he's doing this, she is about to die, looks up at the obelisk, and effectively kind of spirit walks into this thing inside the amber next to the stone eater, which she describes as being a very painful process of, like, being dragged across the the jagged rock, arrives in this, all in the second as she's being attacked and choked out or whatever else is occurring to her. And do either of you remember what she says? She says something to the stone eater that, that brings it to life
2: she asks. she asked the stone eater are you all right
0: she's asked them both essentially this question the yeah. guardian but she was kind of directing it at the stone Eater before and then she repeats it to the stone eater and it responds it comes alive and she falls into unconsciousness without any awareness of what's happening or what will be her future fate And again, as is the nature of this book, we don't find out until about 30 or 40 pages later.
3: Yeah, I think
1: it's more than that. And so the other thing that I want to briefly touch on before we get into the uh, pirate island love triangle um, (laughs) is the sort of instilled reaction to guardians that she still has and still has after having a guardian attack alabaster, which is like he asks her a question she answers she's polite like there's that ingrained um abuser abusey interaction i i i i kind of want to throw the the mentor appellation in your face but like i just can't do it because like it's so not okay but like the uh you know stockholm syndrome like she is to the point where her interactions with guardians are this is how it goes this is how you respond and this is again reiterated from her like weird interaction with the guardian um that we had at the end of Damaya's story it's just like that's how you respond to guardian it is you know they ask you to do something and you do it you're always polite and whatever else and so even in the act of essentially this guardian attacking her her and her party she still has this uh underlying reaction
0: to dealing with the guardian and then
1: go ahead spencer
0: yeah as as you said it's, it's an absolute conditioned obsequiousness of where they have built into them broken down out of them just no concept of saying no or denying what the guardian requests even to the moment of their own death um the only exception we see to this is Alabaster and whatever he did to his guardian but even he is just we we really see laid out in this moment that as powerful as the Origins we've seen in the story are the Guardians are designed from those earliest stories that we told in Demise arc to defeat them that the Origins have no concept or understanding of how the Guardians work and seeing it playing out is terrifying Yeah, their paper to the Origins rock yeah, very much so But Mm -hmm. as you were saying BJ
1: yeah, nonsensical, but somehow win. Um, mm.
0: Yeah, so they wake up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on an island, which I love how terrifying the coast and islands are, which makes it which very realistic for a world that is built around seismic activity, that being anywhere near the coast would just be death.
2: No, it's just a death knell. The idea that a that a, a quake could happen at any time, and then a tsunami appears yeah. from that. I mean, it's it's yeah. just... It's suicide to choose to live on an island and yet here they are on an island <laughs> on, uh,
1: on an island and everything sort of seems to be relatively fine sure um i i sort of wonder if um jameson is pulling from uh there are a bunch of coastal and island peoples that have like passed down oral traditions of if the water goes out you go up the mountain mm-hmm. stories where it's so ingrained in society. Like when certain things happen, it's devastating. And so these are stories that you pass down to your children.
2: Well, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting sort of contrast and foil to the idea of the store stone lore in this book, right? Because this, what we learn eventually is that this Island community has presumably been living there for Certainly for generations, I assume through seasons, um, based on their own sort of lore and knowledge, which is obviously in direct contrast to what the stone lore says, because they're living on an island when they shouldn't.
1: Right. And we'll sort of get to it eventually, but it seems like there's possibly, you know, at least a couple of origins that are essentially maintaining this, uh,
0: yes. Island. Um, this is kind of really our it It's been hinted at for a long time by Alabaster, and it's made readily clear in this chapter that Alabaster has known about these communities for a long time. Maybe even... Well, he's from the Fulcrum, so he didn't originate there, but maybe has some family history connecting him back to them. Mm-hmm. But this is our first direct exposure of Alabaster, showing to Cyanite that this world that I've now shown to you is immoral, dangerous, and wrong. Here's another Not, option. So you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to yeah. submit to it. There's an alternative.
1: I do I I'm looking back at my notes and, and I realize there's one thing that I want to bring up because it's something that we need to talk to about talk about later, um, in just before they left to or they ended up on this island, um, the We Are Gods in Chains. Yeah. Um, that's where that comes up. And so they talk about how they the origins chained their own power uh, to essentially be part of society and that we are gods in chains and that's where it comes up. And so it sort of puts a little bit of the fulcrum and the origins of the fulcrum in perspective anyway. Yeah. um, So, so they end up on this Island and they don't really know what's going on. And a bunch of people sort of show up and they're just like, what the hell are you doing here? And, um Alabaster starts talking in some random language that Cyanite doesn't understand, that apparently a bunch of people on this island understand, and they're having conversations that she doesn't understand, and slowly <laughs> she eventually learns this language a little bit. Um and they're basically welcomed with semi-opened arms into this island community, and they sort of are given a little bit to do. Um, and once they're sort of a little bit finding their place, uh, the pirate king returns and, um, then fancy things
2: happen. Yeah. I mean, this is another one of, this is another one of those lulls. Once they kind of get themselves into this society, lull is not the right word, but let's say calm. It's a period of stillness, um, (laughs) and, and like relative happiness where they are on this island um they ingratiate themselves with the community the kind of big boss man pirate comes back um falls in love with both cyanide and alabaster we have a very productive love triangle um a, chi- it's not even a love
0: triangle i mean there's there's no conflict here it, it, it is
2: well yeah it, that's it, true it, it,
0: it's it's an obtuse angle more than a triangle <laughs> um, the, yeah there is one
2: a- sort of and I was there's going to point. say fulcrum point, yes. but that is not yes. not true. <laughs> Use it. Work um, it. <laughs> but there, there is a central point. Like, this this pirate and kind of island is, is the kind of point of connection. Um, and there's not really any conflict or anything anything like that. Like, everyone is in love with everyone, and it's fine. Um, and even Alabaster and Cyanite like each other more in all of these goings-on. Um, and the child is produced... And the child is two years later. Yeah. Yeah. We go through (laughs) like two to three years of relative happiness and peace and quiet. Um, And then we get, I think, to our our kind of final big moment in the Cyanite arc. Yeah.
1: Well, and so in this two years, Cyanite, you know, is vaguely raising your child and is like, hey, you know, this was a thing. Like, it happened to me, it's fine. Like, I love yeah. my child well enough. And, you know, she begins to love Alabaster and maybe kind of like him. Um, Alabaster participates in raising their child along with uh, the Pirate King. And Cyanite's kind of like, hey, like, this is cool and all, but like, I'm bored and I want to go on Pirate Raid. Fair. Um, <laughs> Who wouldn't really? <laughs> yeah um and so inan the the pirate king who isn't the head of the May of uh calm which is the island, which is Harless, which is kind of sort of an interesting like there's a political head and then like a military and social head mm-hmm. which is inan um and it's like well, you just had a baby and and so like yeah, a couple of years ago like,
2: he's it's fine. fine please let I me wanna, do something else yeah
1: yeah i want to go on some pirate raids and so basically he allows it they go on a pirate raid and uh they go back to alia yeah so so basically they're about to be attacked by a ship and uh Cyanide takes care of that and so she asks to go back to alia and Alia's basically a smoking volcano hole.
2: Which what, what, seems what to say? have been caused by whatever it was that kind of pulled them into pulled cyanite and alabaster into um,
0: yeah we're, we're, leave- the we're abolish, leaving out great one, yeah we're leaving out one hell of a character here in terms of who actually brought them to the island for their safekeeping
2: right
1: yeah we're leaving out a stone eater that we don't know much about (laughs) is like alabaster
2: alabaster's stone eater i don't know (laughs) it seems to be connected to him in some specific
0: years that they've apparently been hanging out together in some way not comfortably though no no he has no understanding of her other than that she is there to protect him
2: to serve him and to allow
0: him to do something sure maybe kind of
2: in her in her own way
0: um and notably compared to the other stone eaters that we meet over the course of the story She's not really trying that hard to blend in with humanity. Yeah. That while some other stone ears we meet that will discover <laughs> <in> the character <laughs> arcs, um, make Sweet. an active effort to resemble humanity to have human features and human characteristics and human interactions. This one makes no more than a token effort at it, to the point that she doesn't even bother to move rooms when she speaks. It's just kind of a sound reverberating out mm-hmm. of her, uh, which I think in many ways reflects her differing philosophy compared to some of the, uh, well, yeah. other Stone Eaters we might meet about yeah. how, what her goals are yeah. here. She um, is a sort
2: of moving statue. Right. Oh, yeah,
1: And so I think the other thing, and one of the reasons that I feel like we both... Glo- glossed over her is she kind of is there and then not and then cyanide's like yeah whatever i'm just not gonna deal with this shit yeah um i've got my life to
2: as one does yeah um but what so when they go back to this kind of or when they sail by i suppose this sort of smoking wreck that is alia um there is notably some movement on shore
1: so um, I, I think there are a couple of things. One, it's there's like still seismic activity going on. Yes. And basically another apocalypse about happens and Cyanite quells it and then sees a yeah. some movement, which is a guardian.
2: One guardian in the smoldering wreckage of the shore who is clearly sort of himself sensed. And I think we can say sensed here instead of, instead of, yes. instead of Cessed. Um, that she has performed some sort of orogeny.
0: Right. I think it's pretty heavily implied that he intentionally left there in some ways in the hope that... Yes. Cyanide or Alabaster, who almost unquestionably caused this incident, would return to the scene of the crime so that they then can be tailed to wherever they're hiding. The fulcrum does not forget and cannot allow those to operate outside it.
2: But then she... Like essentially, at that point, she decides to just forget that she has seen this guardian. Um, and they have kind of another short period of peace and prosperity. Um, yeah.
0: She she does tell Alabaster about it.
2: Yes, um, she does. Um, She's like, I don't the- think it's
1: a thing, but let me tell you, because they're not gonna, or Nk Jameson doesn't fall into the trope of like we're not gonna have our characters talk about things that they would obviously talk about <laughs> right. um which again thoroughly appreciate that she doesn't do that yes uh, but we also very much glossed over like we too vaguely mentioned this love triangle and way back earlier you know like an hour and a half ago I mentioned about her descriptions of sex and we get quite a number more of those in varying amounts of detail with this love triangle that again I feel like are not are are more reasonable than pretty much every other author every other one i've read, and so along with listening to this book, I was reading uh altered carbon mm-hmm. and I read sort of the entire trilogy. I think I read the first and the third book when I was listening to this book uh for the first and second time and talk again you know a fun book that had very interesting stuff but talk about a intrusive and obtrusive love scenes um that those books you know at least once or twice there's a love making scene that's just like why was this here i hate it um and this and nk jameson's descriptions were a you know essentially night and day with what's very commonly used in sci-fi and fantasy and in general and so there was just a what i felt was a very good description of two people enjoying their relationship and the evolution of Cyan and alabaster's relationship and the sex that was going on in this relationship compared to the earlier one that they had when they were essentially being forced by the fulcrum to produce a child.
2: Well, and this is... I mean, Jemison is clearly an author who has thought... I mean, she has thought carefully about what sex means in this world. Um, and there are, as we've discussed, there are social and political ramifications, ramifications um, for certain types of sex. But also then the contrast to that, which is a sort of like sex for pleasure um, or for personal fulfillment or for whatever. Um, And she depicts all of the sides of that spectrum of kind of what intercourse and what sex can be Mm
0: -hmm.
2: in ways that feel real.
0: For for at least two of these three characters, I don't think we really get much of an insight into the name of the pirate. Is his name Iman? Is that his name? Inan. For at least uh, Cyanite and Alabaster, this is clearly the most meaningful and personal relationship they've really ever had forming this kind of poly- polyamorous relationship that they're in yeah and i think it's strong suggested just that for Cyanite this is perhaps one of the only relationships that she's ever had if not the only that is a matter of her own choice and desires and that for alabaster i think it's strong just that he's had such relationships in the past but they've always been forbidden and have inevitably resulted in tragedy um and-
2: and one of the mm-hmm. things that is that is really sort of poignant about this, particularly in what is to come, um, is that you know this is not we are not just especially in these moments getting descriptions only of sex, but of the sort of like relationships and family that comes out of that, um, and that is one of the only moments that we get that in in this book.
0: For for what for such a prickly pear as Alabaster can be, as caustic as is as, as is his nature. We see the level of um, either caring or dependency that he starts to develop for Cyanide to the point that of those who have objections to her going on her voyage, his are the most pronounced, of where he's very, very much desperately afraid to be left alone. You've talked about the loneliness that is his character, and he's truly, maybe for the first time in at least a long time, or even in his own life, really found an escape from that, and he's terrified of the idea of losing it. And that is a very touching moment for a character that can come across as very... At times, difficult to bond with or be close with by his own action.
2: Yeah. And so we get this really, you know, delightful moment um, of bonding of family of community and that is quickly rent. Um.
1: Yeah. You can't, you know, you can't be happy for too long.
2: No, no the Guardians no. are coming.
1: Yeah. Um, and I I think that and I know I like to tease and, and, and bring up George R. Martin and game of thrones um and you know how i feel about those but i feel like these two authors have a um dashing of expectations or a like everything's not okay and -hmm. they do it in very different manners and i feel like they're sort of the two ends of the stuff is going wrong spectrum where uh nk jameson
0: sort of breaks the world and george R. r martin kills people
2: Oh, that's interesting,
0: yeah. It's one of the differences in my mind between a bad thing happens versus tragedy, of where, you know, a bad thing happens is somebody dies and that's that. Tragedy, in some ways, in my mind, is best done as helplessness before inevitability. And I think Jason does that very well in these chapters, of where it is being so heavily foreshadowed that whatever peace they have will fall apart, not only from the build-up of knowledge of the Guardians knowing about where they are, but also our knowledge of where cyanide may end up from our interpretations of how these three different character arcs work i think it plays out just very well as we see that their fall the end of their happiness was ordained and they all they can really be is observers as it occurs and that just makes it all the more painful as it plays out
1: yeah and i think you touched on something that i don't know that we well vocalized in demaya's arc but the description and sense of Inevitability and helplessness, I think, is a recurring theme in this book. And she communicates it so well that it is horribly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think the scene that we spent a lot of time trying to avoid discussing, where Shafa breaks Damaya's hand and how well she describes it and how uncomfortable it is, is reiterated a couple of times in cyanites arc with the approaching of the guardians in alia and then in essentially the resolution of the uh island paradise arc when the guardians come in force with a fleet of i believe four ships to quash and quell <laughs> the uh the island calm
2: and so the guardians come in on their four ships in in the midst of a sort of idyllic picnic like island picnic right in in the yeah. in the most jane austen Everything of all of perfect. the of all of the moments right and um, they're not only ships with guardians on them, as as every cyanite in Alabaster beginning, um, when they immediately start trying to battle um, what we learn later also to, or at least one.
0: Yep, and and, and, uh, and recruited it, local militia too, a full-on yes. army they brought yeah. with them.
1: Yeah, and it's sort of something that um, cyanite doesn't expect that there are origins that are with the guardians, and I think that it sort of plays into her. Uh, the vestiges of her naivete in terms of, like, what's going on at the fulcrum. Um,
2: and so we have this, I don't know how much we want to go into it, but we kind of epic, really quite epic battle um, going on um, with a real sense of desperation from Cyanite's perspective um, because this is the only piece she's ever known that she's yeah. trying to defend as well as her child, as well as the people that she loves.
1: Yeah, as well, you know, so essentially... Alabaster starts, you know, doing what Orogeny he can and Cyanite essentially does what she can and goes off with Inan onto a ship to go and fight the invaders. And
2: Alabaster stops that.
1: Yeah. And I was going to say, and then they have a conversation basically of a, you know, that the guardians are coming for, for you, me and, and our child. And if you have to do what you need to do, then do it and kind of doesn't acknowledge it.
0: Well, he practically tells her this as he's being dragged into the earth by antimony, if memory serves, right?
1: Yeah. I was going to say that. So that, that sort of after the, the main part of the battle, I thought when they're on the ship and they land the ship again and she comes back and, you know, goes to find him and he's sinking into the ground. And then she realizes that he's being pulled down by antimony. He basically says they're coming for a child and he can't fall into their grasp and Mm -hmm. what you need to like you need to do whatever you can to prevent that um and he i think sort of brings up like you know at at best he becomes a slave and at worst he becomes a node maintainer
2: yeah um and so it, i mean i'm forgetting the sort of vicissitudes of what happens at any indi- individual moment but like this does not go well
0: right. yeah with, with with alabaster gone and seeing the full technology that's being wielded by this attacking force this is a proper military attacking them they have cannon which are unheard basically unheard of in this world they have a full-on militia force that they've recruited from the local comms this is not something that they can stand against without, without alabaster and as he is pulled away by antimony who cares nothing but for his safety the silent is left for itself and very quickly falls from that and i
1: believe that there isn't like a full resolution
2: no there's not um we're kind of left on a cliffhanger essentially um although it becomes clear at least what the outcome was eventually
1: yeah, well, and I, I seem to remember it's like, you know what you need to do, and Cyanite says yes, and then it kind of ends.
0: Well, there he, I don't remember if this was in a different chapter or not, but the ship, is, the ship that she's on is bombarded by cannon. It's mm-hmm. broken right. into pieces. It's boarded by the attacking vessel with well-armed militia making quick work of the pirates. Cyanite retreats into the inner cabin where Anon comes to protect her, and she then watches her lover die before her eyes, finally understanding what is the nature of the guardian's ability and making an origine, an, or, an origin's orogeny turn back in on itself, as she right. quite literally watches. Right. And as she's standing there holding her baby, alabaster's words, chanting through her head, watching her lover in quite literal pieces on the floor, Shafa walks in the room, having not aged a day since she saw him last, and acting as if this is nothing more than... Another pleasant introduction between the two of them, briefly disdaining the seemingly glee that the other Guardian has for what he's just done to Anon, but otherwise not having any seemingly practical recognition that this might be a different emotional moment for for uh, Cyanite than what he's having. And he recognizes immediately it's Alabaster's baby. He goes to approach them, and then, as you guys said, it's really not clear what happens, other than that she seems to call down the thunder from the... Uh, obelisk once again, seemingly as I think we'd better deduce this from the after effects than in the moment, smothers her baby, um, and utterly shatters the island and its surviving inhabitants and soldiers with the nature of her powers and what she's yeah. drawing from the obelisk. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: so she taps into the amethyst and whether or not she smothers her child or she just ices everything yeah, is kind of unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there are a couple of other things that i sort of wanted to you know vaguely touch on as touching parts of the story um alabaster gives her two rings that he fashioned
3: mm-hmm. and yes. talked
1: about her son's future um and so this is sort of a a continuation of their relationship and then um this is essentially the end of Cyanite's story um and uh the 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 other thing that i wanted to mention is that it's i believe in this chapter that alabaster retells the story of mislamenchinshana um and from, from the other perspective from right yeah from the other perspective and sort of what was going on and that um mislamenchinshana as we discussed in our last episode were essentially an origin and uh an emperor and uh for whatever reason the origin rises up against the emperor and the emperor finds a way to put down this origin that's fomenting rebellion um and what alabaster says is the true story is that this was occurring during the season of the teeth and i feel like we need to talk about seasons a little bit more um, but very Save basically, that one for four. <laughs> um, the season of the teeth is something happened and people resorted to cannibalism and the ruling people, family or whatever, uh, be- resorted to cannibalism, but then got a taste for uh, long pig, the other white meat, whatever you want to call it <laughs> um, and started raiding other villages and comms and whatever to satisfy this hunger and essentially the uh, king whatever uh, raided some calm and took the wife lover of this origin to eat her Mm -hmm. and i think did so and the origin wasn't so fond of that resolution and basically wanted to disrupt this civilization um and ended up being put down and i interpreted this retelling as this is what's happened and this is the sansid
0: empire this yeah the earliest moments of the sans empire the blood that it was founded upon mm-hmm.
1: yes so the sansid empire was essentially founded by This ruling class that resorted to cannibalism got a taste for it and continued doing it once it was unnecessary. And my feeling is that this is sort of a dirty secret of the ruling class of the current civilization.
0: I mean, it's one hell of an original sin to say that your founding fathers were quite literally baby eaters. kind of sets the nature of your civilization in a certain fun light
2: yeah and the yeah. extent to which that may or may not still be happening is is unclear um but because it is a sort of unacknowledged origin um and un, an unspoken truth there is certainly a pathway by which this is still the sort of distinguishing factor of the sunset ruling class
1: right the, the, and the, the, it's also is a... uh no. go ahead
0: spencer I was just going to say this is of course assuming that what uh, that alabaster's account of the story is any necessarily more accurate or complete than that we got from Schaefer. No, of yes. course
2: because they 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 both have their own um
0: unreliable narrator.
2: Yeah, problems. and and they both have their own sort of like um reasons for putting forth these narratives.
1: Right. And so it is in this that we learn that so revenge against the, the cannibals from killing these people are starting to tear everything apart. And it is from this sort of back and forth and destruction of the civilization that Origins themselves or Ragas themselves set up the fulcrum to prevent, like, the further and destruction of all of civilization, essentially. Yeah. And it is, like, right after this revelation that... The fulcrum and origins and possibly guardians themselves are an uh, outcropping of the establishment of some control of this power that was causing a uh, civil war or something of the like in, in what was left of the civilization during the fifth season of teeth that the guardian attack happens and the walls come
0: crumbling down
2: yeah and that's the end of Cyanite. that's the end of Cyanite.
0: without further explanation or perspective on her but by this point we are once we've completed her arc fully aware and i don't think it's revealing much to say this that the third character we've been following over the course of the story as soon is demaya and Cyanite both she's the third face of eve the end of our three fates that we've explored Um, in terms of where they are seemingly at least a couple decades in the future, I would say. And we will complete our arc of the story with her, and thereafter explore the innumerable questions that we have batted around as we've been going through this tale. This is a delightfully dense novel that has given us so much to ponder and so much philosophy to debate over as we go. And from this arc alone, we will have a lot of themes that I hope we will get to discuss in detail come our third and fourth arc of our uh, multi-part journey through this story um do we have anything left to discuss or should we uh with respect to cyanide's arc or should we wrap things up here and wait for next week to wrap up the story
2: let's wrap up for today and then um have our have our questions ready (laughs) i have questions yeah Uh,
3: so many questions questions
2: ready for not
1: next episode but the one after. no save save the questions (laughs) i guess yes Okay. Um yeah. and so probably in three episodes we figure out some and hopefully the next episode or two we'll have some story or what book we're reading next. Yes. Um but can we do a short story uh, next? Yes. Can we need a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We I'm sure, you know, this... maybe a short story or two give us a little bit of time to uh come down from a uh, heavy heavy meal that that
3: yeah. was
0: uh, the fifth season. Yeah. And this, uh, the next arc we go through, though it doesn't necessarily involve as individually brutal moments as we see in Cyanide's story, or as deeply unpleasant and hard to read moments as we saw in Demaya's, most really resembles the road in terms of the subject matter of characters walking through the apocalypse and enduring what that means. It is fully yeah.
2: downtrodden. We are we are yeah. fully beneath the heels.
0: That we, we've moved away from individualized harm and necessarily so unpleasantness because our characters are so just utterly weather worn to it. But in terms of what the world is enduring, we are on a wholly global scale. Yes, and so the other things that i the other
1: thing that I think it's interesting, and we'll get into it more is um two of the perspectives are total in third person, and the final perspective that we're gonna discuss as soon is in second person. And so the entire narration is. You do this and you do that, and I think this gives this novel such a different place for me than most of the other ones that I've read because Mm -hmm. of that, and it took me a little while to get used to it, but once I did, it was evocative.
2: No, it's really effective, and I think a real treat, too, in terms of what it does. In the- it,
0: it tickled my love of choose-your-own-adventure stories while at the same time <laughs> giving me no agency in it. I still was so fully invested in the character and her decisions that I was castigating myself where I felt like she erred. It's just, it's, I've, I've so rarely seen the uh, second-person perspective used outside of those kind of very niche stories or video games. Real fun to see it in a fully comprehensive novel. But yep. we will discuss that in detail <laughs> and how it works and how it doesn't in our next outing with this book. Yes, yes. But, until then, if you are interested in looking at our material or making suggestions or comments about what we'll discuss over some of our next two episodes and exploring the fifth season, BJ, where can they go to find out more of our stuff?
1: Well, that's complicated nowadays, Spencer. <laughs> um, so so you can find all of our stuff on Mangumtalks.com. Um, the our one of our podcasts essentially just ended. Um, though I'm sure there'll be some reprisals pro- with a convention that that uh, bu- our hosts are going to with uh, GOT got questioned. Um, so Game of Thrones ended. Uh, so uh, you know the podcast is for all intents and purposes over. But you should listen to it. It's great. They you know Spencer and Lee go through tons and tons of uh, the. Major story arcs and insanity that is Game of Thrones, um, which is a lot of fun. And uh, I more believe fun they're than actually reading the books.
2: <laughs> and yes. I believe they're looking for suggestions for the next show. that yes, They're um, covering
1: that we have mm-hmm. bandied about Westworld and doing a slightly different format for it. Um, but I'm sure there'll be loads of other things that are in the running. Um, there's uh, Mangum Talks Hoops which has something to do with basketball that uh, Lee and Levi supposedly do, though um, I'm beginning to throw that into more question. There <laughs> is um, Mangum Bluffs, which should be making a return in the not-too-distant future um, after quite a number of uh, difficulties and trials and tribulations. There is Whiskey on the Weekends with myself, Spencer, Lee and Levi where we drink whiskey chat and uh, discuss all the various things that are part and parcel to our friendships that hopefully is being reprised this Sunday Um, and if you want to put your input into any of our content suggestions or anything else go to megantoss.com click on the upper right that says contact us and at least somebody will get back to you and read it though it's probably not Spencer. Um, and you can get all of our content on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and I think I have covered all of the thing.
2: That sounds right.
1: Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Um, and, uh, I think have a good night, guys. It's been a lot of fun, and we've spent close to three hours talking about this, uh, entry (laughs) into the fifth season, which was thorough amounts of fun, but... I'm ready for bed, even though it's halfway into Spencer's evening.
0: Just because I'll (laughs) spare you guys my, you know, what I endure in terms of avoiding sleep, we'll save the next six hours for our coming two weeks. (laughs) But until then, for our listeners, we have a delight. We delight doing this. We hope you enjoy it as well. And we hope you'll join us for next week as we discuss our third arc of the fifth season. Till then, everybody.
3: Bye, y'all.